Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we're the Minimalists. We're here with Malabama. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman is here. What it is. We got Jordan No More, <laughs> Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, post-production Peter. And we got Social Jess. We've got Podcast Sean. Oh, what a wonderful life it is, y'all. Yeah. Today, we're going to talk about fear. We're going to talk about self-doubt and so much more. We've got a very special guest. We'll introduce you to him here in a moment. Big thanks to our Patreon subscribers. If you're listening to this, that means you're keeping our podcast 100% advertisement-free because advertisements suck. Yeah, they do. Let's start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call 406-219-7839 or just email a voice memo from your phone to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a private podcast subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Monique. Hi, this is Monique. I'm in Northern Nevada. I'm holding on to too much of my fantasy self and I know that is part of the issue. I also feel like I don't have enough emotional support from my closest loved one. How can I overcome these obstacles and fears when I'm trying to live more minimal? Joining us in the studio today to help us answer this question and many other questions is the podcaster and author, Lewis Howes, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Lewis, you've got a great show. It's called The School of Greatness. You also have a brand new book out, Mm -hmm. and it is called The Greatness Mindset. In that book, you actually talk a lot about fear. Yes. The fear of judgment and the fear of failure. Also, strangely, the fear of success, which I think is applicable to Monique's question here Mm -hmm. as well, because Monique is dealing with a lot of self-doubt, and she's also dealing with something she calls the fantasy self. Mm Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with having dreams, obviously. As my good friend T.K. Coleman says, dreams don't come true, decisions do. Mm. But quite often our dreams are someone else's dreams. And we feel ashamed because we're not living up to everyone else's expectations. And I was hoping maybe you could shine a light on some of the fears Mm. that Monique is experiencing. Well, I I think she was talking about trying to connect with certain people in her life. Is that what she was saying? Mm -hmm. Like, does she want more intimate connection or what is she wanting specifically from that question? I think think? there's a fear of, uh, there's the self-doubt. Yep. And there's a fantasy self. There's a self that she wants to connect with or be. Mm. There's a person that she wants to be. And as I said, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with wanting to be a person. The question is, who wants you to be that person? Is it something you want or is it an expectation that society has heaped onto you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you become what you envision yourself being, but you must believe you're worthy of that being. Mm. And so I don't know if she wants deeper connection or intimacy or love or what she's wanting from these relationships, but a lot of the fear in intimacy in relationships is I'm not deserving and worthy of support. I'm Mm. not deserving and worthy of love, affection, intimacy, Mm. but also in order to want that intimacy in your relationships, you've got to be willing to be vulnerable and risk humiliation, risk someone not receiving you. 
And that's one of the hardest things. The fear of judgment holds us back from putting ourselves out there, opening our hearts and being more vulnerable. Mm. And it is scary. For, for essentially 30 years of my life, I wasn't opening my heart to intimate relationships because I was afraid of other people's opinions of me. Mm. And that's when we live in more of a powerless mindset, when we are ruled by the opinions mm. of others. I'm not saying feedback, critical coaching, uh, that is important. But when we are defined by the opinions of others, that really holds us back from being mm. intimate, from being vulnerable. Mm. As you guys know, the quality of your life is directly re- related to the quality of your relationships. And the quality of our relationships is directly related to our ability to be vulnerable mm-hmm. with others. And every time I open up sometimes uh, with someone in my life that I care about, it's risky, it's scary. Mm-hmm. But usually on the other side, there is a deeper connection and a deeper bond. And so we've got to be willing to own and reclaim the parts of us that we feel we lost, or we feel like we don't belong to us anymore. Mm. And when we own those things again, when we Mm. reconnect with the self that is fearful, scared, or closed off, when we realign with ourself, whether it be our younger self, our wounded self, uh, our fearful self, and we create a new relationship with self, then we can open up and connect with others. Mm. You know, she brought up a point too about, uh, I think she said her closest loved one Mm -hmm. who isn't super supportive. Mm-hmm. So I know in your book, you talk about uh, garnering support from others. Um, so yeah, what do you do when you have like a a spouse who isn't super excited about your, you know, in her case, her minimalist lifestyle? And yeah. And, uh, yeah. Well, I think it's hard because you got to first choose properly. I mean, once you're in the relationship, if you've made the wrong choice, you've got to accept the person you're with. Mm. Um, so that's why uh, I made this mistake many times. I've had multiple relationships over the last 15 years. And they got to a place of a year, two years in where there was so much friction, but you care about the person, you love the person, you, you've built this life with this person. And I lacked courage in the beginning before exclusively committing in all these relationships before about asking, what are your values? What are your vision? What is your lifestyle? And lifestyle was one of the most important things, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think opposites really... Uh, they might attract, but they don't work long-term. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, I'm interested in that way of being. You're an extreme person. You go out there, but then after three to six months, you're like, I'm a minimalist. I don't want to go live this life. <laughs> Lifestyle is, a, you have to align. I'm not saying it has to be 100% perfect, but there's got to be alignment. If you don't want clutter and everyone else just wants to buy and fill up a space, your lifestyle doesn't align. Hmm. So a lot of it is making sure you choose wisely. And then once you've chosen, accepting the person you're with, my girlfriend, um, when I was getting into the relationship with her, there was a couple things that, I mean, listen, I don't know if this is going to go down this path of relationships, but when I got into it, I really said, I don't want to make the same mistakes I've made in the past, which is connecting with people based on sexual chemistry and attraction, mm-hmm. not on spiritual alignment of values, vision, and lifestyle. And so when I was dating her, I was just asking her everything and she was asking me everything and seeing, are we in alignment on these things? no right or wrong, good or bad. doesn't mean like, hey, if you have a different lifestyle, cool. Mm -hmm. But stepping into full courage, risking it not working out, allowed us to to find harmony working out together. Mm. And maybe I would have had to walk away Mm. if we didn't align. And uh, just because you love someone doesn't mean it's going to be a life story with them. Yeah. I love what you said about acceptance. We have an acronym, T-A-R-A. And it's really uh, advice on how to 
get along with someone who maybe mm. does live a different lifestyle. So T is uh, to tolerate. That's like step number one. Step number two is to accept. Mm-hmm. And then it goes into respect and, and, then, and then appreciation. But when you can get to that acceptance piece, it actually will help you grow closer to someone to where you can respect or uh, get yes. to a point where you actually appreciate them. Yeah, when I got into, uh, before I committed to my girlfriend, I I had to ask myself, can I fully accept who she is before I commit to her? Mm. Because she's an actress. She's like a big celebrity in Mexico. She's done 40 movies. She has kissing scenes with guys in the past. Like these things happen. She's on set with attractive guys or whatever it is. She's got a certain lifestyle. Mm. Mm. And I had to ask myself, do I fully accept that this is who she is right now? She may be this forever. You know, she may be this way forever. Can I accept her? And I said, okay, I had to really check in. I'm like, am I going to get jealous? Am I going to get insecure? Or can I fully accept her? Mm. And I made the decision going into the commitment to fully accept her. And I said, listen, you know, this hasn't happened yet, at least. I said, listen, because I'm choosing to fully accept you, there's no reason why I should ever get upset at you. I may Mm. be frustrated. I may be like disappointed. I may be, you know, we may disagree on things and argue in a certain conscious way, but I should never be angry Mm. at you for who you are being unless you are doing something out of character that is different than what you said is your values, your vision, and your lifestyle. Mm. Again, it doesn't mean I'm not going to have challenging days with you or like stressful moments, but we, I want to create agreements that we should never scream at each other. It should never be that hard where we scream at each other. Mm. So there's no yelling. There's no raising of voices because we've created alignment on our agreements. And so again, it's because I've chosen to accept her for who she is and not gotten frustrated that she does things that maybe I don't enjoy or like sometimes. I'm just like, this is who she is. I accept her. And I want to be fully accepted. I don't want you to get angry at me for my lifestyle. I don't want you to change me. You know, you guys have the whole thing. Now, what does it change the, you can't change the people around you, but can change the people around you mm-hmm. or choose to accept the people for who they are and don't change them. You know, once you accept them, you don't have to change people. Yeah. And what I see in that is the willingness to take a risk. 100%. I mm-hmm. think communication isn't just about getting it right. Mm-hmm. It's also about embarking on that journey of discovering what I need to know in order to make a healthy relationship possible. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when we like have vulnerabilities or needs, We don't say those things because we're afraid the other person's going to respond in an unkind way. And then we end up creating what uh, one writer calls a self-fulfilling idiocy. That's (laughs) when you assume that another person's response to you is going to be idiotic and insensitive. And so you proceed to react to them as if they are already that. Mm. And so you create an Mm -hmm. outcome that is energetically identical to them being idiotic and insensitive. And in a safe, healthy relationship, You got to be comfortable opening up your heart and saying, this is what I need. And if you don't know if that's possible for you, it's worth finding out, even if that process is uncomfortable. And so one thing I would say, Monique, is if you want to connect with your partner and you need more support, you got to express it if for no other reason that you need to know where you stand in your relationship when it comes to getting the support. And what I would do is instead of just saying, I need your support, I would write down a few specific manifestations of what support looks like for me. And I would articulate that, hey, it's my goal to get to bed by nine o'clock every mm-hmm. night. Would you mind helping, you know, nudge me in that direction? Mm-hmm. Hey, it's my goal to sign up for this painting class by the end of the month. Would you mind checking in on me to just hold me accountable to that? Mm-hmm. What does support look like? 
Don't assume that they know what that means for you. Spell it out. Ask them in a form of mm-hmm. a request and see where that takes you. Mm. Yeah, for me, it's all about agreements. You know, early in the uh, the relationship with Martha, my girlfriend, there was a couple nights where she like had some, you know, some concerns in her mind and she would bring them up at like 11 or 12 o'clock at night. After like I'm, my head's already <laughs> down, I'm like half asleep and she yeah. starts talking. I don't know if the ladies listening can... Uh, connect with that. Will you ever bring up something on your mind to your partner uh, late at night? Mm-hmm. And after a few nights, like one night we were just up for like hours talking about something. Again, we weren't screaming, but it was just like kind of going through some stuff. And I was like, this doesn't work for me. Like mm-hmm. we need to create a new agreement where I, cause I want to best serve you with my energy. I want to mm-hmm. be present with you. And you're not setting me up for success when we have a conversation after 11 o'clock or midnight when mm-hmm. I'm half asleep. And so Let's create an agreement where we mm-hmm. don't have these challenging conversations once we're in bed or before, you know, after 10 o'clock at night. Like, mm-hmm. there is no challenging conversations. Mm-hmm. Set us up for success so we can do it in a more conscious, loving way and find more resolution around that. So it's just creating agreements and asking for those things with your partner. Yeah. Wow. Like, makes a lot of sense. So what you did is you basically asked for support from your partner. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, hey, I want to be the best version of myself yes. around you. So here's the support I need to be the best version of myself. Yeah. What a great way to like try to yeah, I form want, one of those agreements. Well, it's thinking about like, I want you to have everything you need. But in order to do that, you can't bring this up at midnight, yeah. you know, when I'm half asleep. I can't. Otherwise, I have to turn the lights back on and like sit up and be present. <laughs> and then it, we go to one thirty, and then we both lose sleep. Yeah. So like, let's just talk about it tomorrow yeah. or talk about it before 10. You know, wait, <laughs> do it before bed. You know what I mean? <laughs> Um, and I think that's, it's created a lot, a lot more harmony. Yeah. Again, my goal is to find more peace and harmony in my life so that I can draw back the energy to me and use it towards being better every single day. Use it towards my mission. Use it mm-hmm. towards being present with my friends. Use it towards my workouts. It's just, it's not about good and bad, right and wrong. This is not a judgment. It's about what is more effective. Yeah. What is more yeah. useful in your life. I, lo- it, yeah. I love what you're both talking about here because I'm hearing the boundaries piece yes. of it and mm-hmm. that helps eliminate fears and also the specificity. You're talking about support. Support can be really nebulous as TK highlighted. I need you to support me more, Ryan. What mm-hmm. does that mean? Well, I don't know, but do it. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't feel supported. Right. Yeah, and right. if that feeling is not wrong, right. but mm-hmm. our desire to be supported then creates a thought that creates the fear. And so I mm-hmm. want to circle back to the to the fear component of this because yes. fear tends to be a byproduct of invented consequences. We think about all of these things. You know, it was the Buddha who said that a wise man has no fear and is thus ultimately free. Mm-hmm. And so the no fear thing we often think of as like, well, of course, fear is just natural. Another great philosopher, 50 Cent, said that... <laughs> My like, favorite like, philosopher. Good. <laughs> Alabama likes the, uh, the juxtaposition of like Buddha it. and 50 Cent. But 50 Cent said, fear is a choice. Danger is real. Yep. Mm. And so quite often what happens, we mistake the thing we're worried about. I'm worried that my partner won't support me. I'm worried that I can't get rid of my fantasy self. I'm worried that I'm going to be worried tomorrow. Yes. I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm worried. And we turn it into a monster. There's no real danger there. Here's the irony though. Mm -hmm. When there is real, real, clear and present danger, if this room is set on fire right now, Mm -hmm. you actually don't have 
that kind of fear. You don't worry about the future. You take action right now. I don't have to go read the fire safety manual to figure out what's the three steps to put out the fire or what are the four things I should do to exit the room. I simply act when there is danger. And so, Mm -hmm. Lewis, I want to talk to you about fear because one of the things you talk about in the book is the fear of success. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can expand on that a bit. Well, there's three main fears. The fear of failure, success, and judgment. And Mm. there's a root to each one of these fears. But when I go around and and talk to people and I'll ask people in the room, like raise your hand if you've ever been afraid of failure. And it's what causes you to not take action on Mm -hmm. writing the book you've wanted to write for 10 years or launching the show or getting out of the relationship or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, 78% of the room will raise their hand as a fear of failure. Mm. And I understand that. You know, that's a lot of people's fears. When I ask people, how many here are afraid of success? Almost the exact amount raise their hand as afraid of success. And I'm like, you're here because you want to learn how to be more successful, but you're afraid of it. So why would success come to you Mm -hmm. if you're afraid of it? If If you're in resistance to receiving it, why would it come to you? You're probably going to self-sabotage or abandon self in order to resist receiving it. And I never understood it because as an athlete, you played sports, right? I don't know if these guys did, but you played sports. <laughs> these now, these you know, guys can't hang with me. You know what I'm <laughs> you're, a, you're a hooper or what? What'd you play? What was the, what was the sport? Basketball, man. You know what I'm saying? You know, when we, uh, you know, we were playing basketball growing up, you know, if you had a good coach, he, uh, he would encourage you to fail, to try. That's right. And you're going to miss the shot. Jordan missed, what, half of his shots at least? And he's one of the greatest of all time, if not the greatest of all time, yeah, right? Top, top seven. Well, no, now that you got, now that you got LeBron in the mix, I don't know. He's the, the leading scorer. You, you don't even realize what you just brought up between you know, these LeBron two. LeBron is the. Uh, I think he's. I think he's the goat. But I mean, hey, we're gonna have to table um, that. TK's gonna be very upset. Yeah, you know, right. I mean, the leading scorer. But um, you know, these guys at the top of their game miss half their shots. You know, the best mm-hmm. baseball players miss. There's they lose 70% of the time. Mm. They don't succeed, right? Mm-hmm. So they're failing more than they're succeeding and they're the greatest of all time uh, at only succeeding 30% of the time. So in sports, you know, we can relate to this. Growing up, we knew that failure was the path to success. It's just the practice you got to put in to get feedback, information on how to adjust our shot, you know, and how to dunk a little bit better. Could you dunk? Nah, man. No, nah, you're a little too much shorter than that. <laughs> you didn't have the hops, but it was just whatever you needed to do to learn it was never a bad thing. Mm. It was like, you're trying. As long as the attitude, the energy, and the effort is there, mm. you're going to get better, right? Yeah. So so failure wasn't something I was afraid of because I knew it was a part of the path to success. Mm. It was just about getting the right feedback, watching the game film, seeing how I could improve. Mm. And success is what I was wanted, but I wanted it from a wound. Mm. I wanted it to prove people wrong. I wanted it to... To, for the three guys that laughed at me in, in yeah. you know, the sports team early on when I wasn't good, when I was picked mm-hmm. last, uh, you know, for all the whatever girls that rejected me. I wanted to prove the world wrong. Yeah. And so I was driven to succeed, to fulfill a desire of being liked, being respected, being more powerful or whatever it was. So when we're driven to overcome something that is a fear of ours by some other fear, Typically, when we receive the results, it still doesn't feel good enough. So I would succeed in sports. Mm. I succeeded in business. And it wasn't until I hit 30 years old when I was like, why has all these goals that I'm accomplishing? I can work hard. I can accomplish goals, but I'm not feeling joyful, happy, fulfilled enough. It's because I was doing it from a wound. The fear of judgment, but I wasn't afraid to act 
out of the fear of success. The fear of judgment was my kryptonite. And mm. it was the thing that I've had to learn over and over again uh, that this will continue to hold me back in every area of life unless I learn to embrace it, accept myself in it, and continually overcome it. And it was the, the opinions of other people, right? Mm. I was more afraid so I could act, I could take action, I could succeed, but then when people would leave nasty reviews, I couldn't deal with it. I would mm -hmm. have to defend myself at all costs. I would have to reply to people and people please. I would have to give in and do all these things so that people would like me. And at the center, the root of all these fears of what holds us back from each one of them is I am not enough, is the feeling that I'm not enough, I'm not worthy enough, not deserving, not lovable enough, not smart enough, not talented enough, uh, you know, not intelligent enough, all these different things. Yeah. And underneath that is a story, is a wound somewhere that we must heal and create new meaning around memories. Mm a memory or multiple memories that back this belief. And when we can create new meaning, as Viktor Frankl talks about, and empower ourselves in the new meaning that supports us in overcoming these fears, that's when we can have a more fulfilling, flowing life. Yeah. And I think that's what it's about. It's just about being aware which fear is causing me to doubt myself the most. Mm. Is it supporting me? Is it useful to have this fear? Is it a danger fear, like a physical danger? Most of the time, it's not. Be prepared for physical danger. But the psychological and emotional dangers of life, judgment of other people, or whatever it might be, or be that is not serving you to stepping into who you're capable of being. Mm. And that's when we need to realize, like, okay, there's some healing that can be done. As uh, Dr. John Mal uh, Maloney, is that his last name? Yeah. yeah. You guys know him well. Deloney. Deloney, sorry. Yeah. Malone, I'm thinking, Mal you know, <laughs> Alabama, I'm freaking all these, you know. Um, I was just with him and, you know, his book, Own Your Past, is all about, we cannot have a great present or future unless we take full acceptance and ownership of our past. That means there's a lot of stuff that we don't want to face and address. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you've had some big traumas or little traumas. We've got to face all of it. Yeah. And we've got to create meaning from all these different moments of our past and have full claiming and ownership of it. When we do that, we can step into the things we want to create with more power and presence. Yeah. Monique, I'm going to send you a copy of Lewis's book. It's called The Greatness Mindset. Our next question is from Michelle. This is Michelle from New York. I'm a new Patreon subscriber. Much like the beginning of your minimalism journey, I'm stuck in a job that I hate because I'm in debt. I'm working on an exit strategy, but how do I survive a soul-sucking job until I'm ready to move on? So, Lewis, this is often a fear. I'm afraid to leave because of the circumstance yeah. I'm in. Now, we talked about this earlier with respect to relationships. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is walk away, mm. but sometimes the most loving thing to do for yourself is also to walk away from mm -hmm. a career that is yeah. soul-sucking. But that doesn't mean you walk into your boss's office today and say, screw you, I quit. And now you actually put yourself in a worse predicament. Yeah, mm -hmm. when you don't have anything. So I, I wouldn't quit until you you first find a mentor or a coach or someone to support you mm. in guiding you in the process. I don't think you should do anything challenging alone, personally. You know, as sports guys, we never got to the top <laughs> in athletics um, without a coach, yeah. right? LeBron... Jordan, when they won their first championship, they didn't say to the coach, thanks so much for getting me here. I think I got this next season. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go win my next championship on my own. I'm good. 
I'm the best now. I've done it. I can get there on my own. They actually went and hired more coaches mm -hmm. to help them in other areas of their deficiencies. So I don't, I think first find a support, a coach, a friend who has got a job or something where they're earning money that they love to support and guide you. Mm. I think second one, get really clear on what your meaningful mission is for this season of life. A lot of us realize what we don't want, but we're not clear on what we do want to create for this season. And that mm. could be like for the next year, three years, five years, doesn't have to be the rest of your life clarity. And I think just really having a game plan around, okay, what is my vision for this that I want to exit by? And what are the other places that I'd like to go and work for? But also you can ask yourself, you know, you may not need to leave the company. You maybe just need to leave the team you're on in the company and, and shift teams and roles, right? Mm -hmm. there, maybe you still love the, the company, the values, the vision of that company. And it's just realigning with a different team leader or, or position as a first option. But if you just don't like what you're doing, then um, really getting clear on what would be the ideal place to work. Mm -hmm. What are the values? What are the types of people that you want to work with? And think about imagining this ideal career path. Once you dream it and start putting mm. down in words, okay, you know, I want to be surrounded by people that are empowering, that actually invest in me to have more skills, that, you know, we do retreats twice a year, that is in this location, that has uh, this industry, that's working in these ways. Once you start to conceptualize it, write it down, then you can start looking for it. Start looking for it and have that support system with that coach guiding you and getting there. But I think get really clear on what you want first before you exit this place. Yeah. What I, what I hear you saying is uh, it's okay to run away, mm -hmm. but know what you're running towards. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Don't just quit and be like, all right, now what? Get clear on your mission first. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, when one door shuts, another door opens, but it is hell in the hallways. Ooh. Ooh. In every hero's journey, <laughs> snap, there are parts <laughs> of the story where you're just going through hell. And what makes the journey a hero's journey is that the story isn't defined by those moments of hell. The story is defined by a vision that you are going through in order to get to. Mm -hmm. And what I hear from your story is that it doesn't begin with you working a job that you hate. It begins with you getting into debt. And then at some point you said, I want to create a new reality. I intend to change my life and I am going to do whatever I got to do to create that desired reality. And you chose to take a job, even though you knew you wouldn't enjoy it that much, because that's how passionate you were about creating the financial freedom that you decided was a priority. That is something that is worthy of praise. Mm. But sometimes in the day-to-day -day details, when we get into the weeds of doing hard things, we forget that why, and we begin to feel as if we're just forced to do stuff. And it works its way into our everyday language. I got to go to work. Mm -hmm. I got to go to practice. I got to go to this meeting. And we, we talk like that and we think like that, but it, no, I don't, I don't have to do this. I'm choosing to do this yes. because I've <clears throat> committed to this process as a result of deciding that something was a big enough priority to me. Yeah. And so I think the important thing here is to keep your vision before you because you're not going to be able to get through the tough days on that job by trying to force yourself to think positively. You're not gonna get through that tough day on your job by trying to lie to yourself when you don't really feel good. The only way you get through it is you say, 
What is the vision on the other side that I decided that I want that gives me the power to press through and pull through so that when you're done, you'll be able to look back and tell a story that says, hell yeah, I went through hell to make this happen. And that's why I really appreciate it. Yeah. And as you guys know, uh, victims have to do things. The mm-hmm. people who are in power are blessed to do things. Yeah. Even if you don't love what you're doing, yeah. you're saying, I'm powerless. There's a powerless mindset versus a greatness mindset. Right. And if you have to, I have to go to work. I have to get up and do this thing. I have to take my kid to school. I have to do, pick up my kid up at school. Whatever it is, then you're a victim. You are mm-hmm. powerless to your decisions because you have to. Uh, but if you want to step into your power, it's a, it's a get to. It's a, I choose to, like you said. And if you want to create an abundance of energy, it's a, I'm blessed to. Mm. Because it's adding the because to it. So I'm blessed to go to this job because I have an investor that supports me in my life. I'm blessed to go to this job because, man, a million people got laid off in this last month in America and I didn't. Mm. I'm blessed to because it's paying my bills. I'm blessed to because it's supporting my family. I'm blessed to because when we add the meaning to it, we start to appreciate it. And what we appreciate, appreciates in value over time. So it's shifting mm-hmm. our attention and our focus on what we have to do and making it a blessed to because. Yeah. So I think what Michelle is finding out here is the true cost of debt. And it's infinitely more than just the interest rate. Yeah. Mm. Because you can have those credit cards, you can have the car mm. debt, you can have the mortgage debt, you can have the payday loans, you can have all the debt. But the cost of that isn't just mm. the interest rate. It's stress. The emotional cost, yeah. Yes, it's anxiety. It's discontent. It's overwhelm. It is, what am I going to do? It's feeling stuck. Mm. It's feeling trapped. It's a tether. No longer am I free because I have this debt. And I think where Michelle is right now is where Ryan and I were 15 years ago. Yeah. We mm-hmm. had we made good money in the corporate world, but spent even better money. Yeah, you guys did. <laughs> and and so we you had, were broke. You had, you had the Beamer, right? The BMW. Yeah. <laughs> I had a couple Lexuses. A couple Lexuses. Yeah. Land Rover. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, I just I did a Solera, like Toyota Solera, like just yeah, anyway. And, and we, we <laughs> what we would do is we would pacify ourselves, go further into debt. Mm. Because of what Lewis was talking about earlier, I am not enough. Mm-hmm. Here's how I can prove I'm enough, really, by going into debt, which actually makes me more deficient because now I truly don't have enough mm-hmm. to walk away from the situation I want to walk away from. Mm. It took me four years of going wild to pay off my debt. In fact, at one point I was delivering pizzas, even though I was working in the corporate world, I said, you know what? Come on. I'm going to go deliver pizzas at night. No way. (laughs) Just to pay off these credit cards. Wow. Because I knew I no longer wanted to be tethered. The pain of the debt was no longer worth it. So I knew that the temporary pain of delivering pizzas was bearable. What was unbearable was continuing to stay in the situation that I was in. That's amazing. You know, you know, my analogy for how I see debt is, Imagine you're just chilling at home and you get a phone call and someone says, hey, are you coming in today? And you're like, who is this? And the person says, I'm the manager at XYZ Company. You coming in to do your shift? And you say, I don't know you. I didn't apply for a job at your company. <laughs> and, and then he says, yeah, but your buddy signed you up for a shift. He volunteered you to come to work today. And you say, uh, look, man, I didn't sign up for that. Now, I don't know if you go into that shift or not, but I do know that you confront your buddy and you say, hey, man, don't ever sign me up for something without consulting me first. Mm-hmm. When we take on mind-numbing consumer debt, that's exactly what we're doing to our future self. 
we're not being a good friend at all. We're signing our future self up for something mm. without consulting the intentions of wow. our future self. That's wow. what debt does. And it empowers other people to be able to make demands on our time, talk to us in ways we don't want to be talked to and consume our energy even when we don't like it. Oh, yeah. we got another question here. This one is from Joanna. Hi, it's Joanna here from the UK. Fear of the future, providing for our future selves into the unknown is a fear that surely keeps many attached to securing financial reward. As we age, these insecurities seem to become more ingrained. Fear grows and freedom is misinterpreted. How do we free ourselves from the attachment to security when this becomes our primary driver? In what ways can we choose to live where we're more self-sufficient? What are some examples of this way of life and how might it look in reality? We can free ourselves from the attachment to physical possessions, but the attachment described keeps us trapped in the same rabbit hole. I think that's a really great point, Joanna. Mm. Lewis, Mm. what we're putting a spotlight on here is fear, and fear itself is a spotlight of something that hasn't happened yet, generally. And she said, fear of the future. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, because we never have fear of the past. <laughs> we have depression about the past. We have sadness about the past. We have grief about the past. Well, we bring our fears to our present, though, if mm-hmm. we haven't learned to own the past. Mm. And so that's what hurts us because mm. we still might be living in the past with the story and the fears that are consuming our nervous system. And it's never mm. a, a physical danger fear, right? I mean, that, that is one thing. Um, but it's really the emotional and psychological fears yeah. That make our nervous system react when someone cuts us off. That makes us triggered when someone says something we don't like. That makes us feel like, oh, they disrespected me. Let me, let me defend myself or whatever it might be. It's the so it's the emotional and psychological triggers and fears of the past that we carry with us. Mm-hmm. So we must first own and mm-hmm. heal and mend the past first. Yeah. We'll be less attached mm-hmm. to the future fears if we can heal the past. First, and I think that's the key. Everything for me has been about a healing journey, about an acceptance journey and healing and creating new meaning. If we get to a place where, and again, it's not about who's right and wrong, good or bad. This doesn't, this is about what is effective for your life, right? Yeah. So if this fear, I'm forgetting who the, what her name was, but if her, if her, Joanna, Joanna, if your fear is ineffective for you, if it's causing you to hold yourself back, it doesn't mean you're bad or wrong. It just means it's not useful anymore. So let's create some useful tools for you. And the first one is addressing and asking yourself, where is this coming from and how can I start to mend and heal that fear? And then stepping into, you know, I just follow Dave Ramsey's, you know, seven baby steps. It's like once you set yourself up with a game plan of your finances and you can see the future with your game plan and you act on it accordingly, uh, spend less than you than you make, right? It's like live under your means, like do these simple things that are, that will keep you in a safety feeling for the future. Don't overspend when you don't have to. Mm. And when we can do the steps analytically and also heal emotionally, that's when we can be free. Mm. I uh, Over the weekend, I heard someone say, um, fear is to pray for something bad to happen. And if you think you about it, to our podcast, <laughs> <laughs> oh, was it on our podcast? That's we literally that my quote. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Well, um, whoever whoever said it, they must have stole it from you, man. 
Anyway, um, yeah, it is funny though. So a great quote, Josh, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's so true. It's like when we focus on bad things that happen, mm-hmm. certainly bad things are probably going to happen. Yes. Um, and I love kind of what you were talking about with these memories we have or the stories we tell mm-hmm. ourselves. Like I could sit here and I could tell myself like, dude, I'm such a loser, man. I was a drug addict. I was a womanizer, yada, yada, yada. Or I could look back and say, you know, I really learned a lot of hard lessons Yes, and it really brought me a, a long way. And yeah, my childhood wasn't the best, but I really like where I am today. And both of those stories are true, mm-hmm. but you get to decide which story you tell yourself. Yes. And what meaning you want to add to the story. You yeah. know, again, it doesn't mean we minimize the pain from the past or the things that you did or things I did from the past, but it's saying, man, okay, I have compassion for that younger version of myself. Mm. I made some mistakes. It was stupid. That was dumb that I did these things or whatever. Let me have compassion because I didn't have the tools or the wisdom then like I do now. Yeah. So the adult in the room has the wisdom from the pain Mm. of going through the hell in the hallway. Right now I've got the pain. Let me create some wisdom. You know, for me, I had to learn over and over again in relationships, the same type of pain. It took me longer to learn Mm. than a lot of you guys. But uh, once we can create new meaning around that past, then I feel like we can set ourselves up for freedom. It's interesting. You're talking about like, an identity thing almost in the mind. Mm-hmm. When you say these things, I'm a loser, I'm this, I'm that. I used to speak so poorly to myself internally and externally mm-hmm. for a long time in my life. I don't know if you guys have ever did this oh, yeah. or if you always were kind to yourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, Josh is shaking his head now. Like, <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah. For me, I used to say, mm-hmm. man, you're such an idiot to myself and yeah. I'm such an idiot to others. I'm such a loser. I can't believe I messed this up. Oh, why am I so dumb? I used to say these things all the time and think them all the time. And if they recorded our thoughts and they played it on a loudspeaker in front of the world, they'd probably put us in a mental hospital. Yeah. Or if we recorded these thoughts and we said this to our best friend, our parents, our our partners, they wouldn't want to be with us. So why would we be with ourselves if we are speaking so poorly with a negative identity? And part of my, you know, experience has been learning how to unwind that in myself over the last 10 years mm. and create a new positive identity so that the fear of the future, like I think Joanna said her name, yeah. the fear for the future of like, oh, am I going to be secure and safe with money and attachments and all these things? When you create a different identity with self now by mending and healing the past and having wisdom and compassion, you can step into the future of the uncertainty, the unknown with more grace and less fear. And it's about building the reps of confidence with self. It's about building the reps with the way we speak to ourselves and how we speak about ourselves to others as well. And I think that's part of the process is learning that skill. Yeah. Yeah. Lewis, I love your, your, uh, who you dedicated this book to. Can I read this real quick, Josh? Go for it. So it's, uh, I dedicate this book to my younger self for having the courage to carry me through pain, Mm. my current self for facing my shame and learning how to heal and to my future self, because the journey to greatness has only just begun. And man, that is, um, it's very, it's very hard to have compassion for our younger selves, mm-hmm. let alone your future self. Mm-hmm. But man, that's, um, it's just a great example of how you can kind of look back and instead of beating yourself up, you can kind of uh, have an appreciation and, and some compassion for it's yourself. Inter- it's interesting because I've been going through, uh, you know, it's been a 10 year healing journey for me. And kind of each couple of years, it's unlocked new levels of healing and peace. But in the, la- the last two years, two years ago, I really was still struggling in intimate relationships. Um, and I felt like I finally unlocked 
the peace code inside of my heart a couple of years ago. I used to have kind of a chest pain Hmm. off and on, tension in my throat in different relationships over the years because I was abandoning myself. I was uh, Hmm. choosing and then I was afraid of judgment of, okay, I know this isn't working out and I need to get out of this relationship, but I lack the courage to get out because I don't want to hurt someone. I don't want someone to be mad at me or angry with me. So I would abandon self always. So two years ago, I started on a new emotional coaching journey where I hired a new coach to help me. I was just like, I need to break free. I need peace, freedom, and clarity so that I can move forward and feel fulfilled in my life because I felt like I was living at a six or a seven because of intimacy, how I was lacking in intimacy. Mm. And it always, it, it's never a blame of anyone else I've been with. It's always about me. And I, and I didn't understand how to unlock the code of inner peace mm. in intimacy. Mm. And she, my coach put me on a, a journey of, she calls it, you know, healing the inner child inside of each one of us, right? The, the child inside of each one of us that had pain, that had challenges, that had memories that hurt them, that never addressed those things, mm. that never healed and mended those things. So for about six months on my screensaver, I had a photo of my five-year-old self right there on my screensaver. So every day, you know, you open your phone probably a hundred times a day, check at the time or open it up, I would see a photo of myself. And she put me through a number of different exercises almost weekly for six months to really go back and create a different relationship with my younger self. To do, you know, some interesting exercises and visualizations and meditations where I see my five-year-old self in front of me. Mm. I have a conversation with him. I say, how are you feeling? And then I listen to what he was feeling. Say, what do you need? And I listen to his needs. Say, you know, and start saying, I've got compassion for you. I'm so proud of you for what you overcame, what you had to endure. You're doing amazing. And I know it's scary. It's having that conversation, being the adult for my younger self that he always needed and doing it for myself and kind of creating these spiritual experiences where I would bring my younger self into my heart Mm. and connect with him and open it up and say, listen, you got us so far. And I know it was scary and I know you didn't have the tools and I know you didn't know what you were supposed to do, but you made it here. Congratulations. I'm proud of you. Giving my younger self actually what he needed now with the adult in the room. Again, it might be a little weird talking about on the show right now, but that has been those experiences, those lessons, those practices and integrating those lessons so the nervous system can be relaxed when danger, fear, uh, emotionally and psychologically comes up where I'd normally react, now I can respond with peace because my younger self has created healing. And I think just, just whatever you need to do to heal the past, I think, and own the past, do what works for you. But um, these practices have been extremely helpful. And when you have that ability to slow things down mm-hmm. and respond with composure, then you can begin to see these various emotions as sources of wisdom. Yes. Those fears are there to enlighten you. I, I recently saw a horror, a horror movie where the lesson was essentially that the ghosts that haunt you aren't always there to scare you away. Sometimes they're there to wake you up so that you can oh. stop sleepwalking through life. Mm, and snap. when you think about fear, sometimes the monsters that repeatedly show up in our experience, circumstantial monsters, psychological monsters, they're not there to frighten the hell out of us. Mm-hmm. They're there to say, hey, look, I got something I want you to take a look yeah. at. I got something that I want you to confront. And so with respect to this question, there's nothing wrong with fearing a future of insecurity. This fear might be there 
so that you can start asking yourself some questions that will put you in a position where you feel good about your level of preparation because you can't live off of someone else's preparation and you can't feel secure based on what other people need, but you can only feel secure based on a plan and a level of preparation that reflects your preferences, your priorities, and your principles. Mm. The other thing I would say with respect to living the life you want to live now and not waiting until some distant future gives you permission. Life isn't an either or game of I got to wait until I can have it all and, and I get nothing now or I have it all now and I get nothing then. Life is a game where you try to squeeze out as much opportunity as possible to taste the essence of the life you want to create for yourself in the future so that you're enjoying bits and pieces of that as you create more of that, as you create more room for it. And so I would ask myself, like, well, what is it that I want to want to have in the future? What is the way I see my life? What are the types of things I want to be doing? And what are small opportunities that I can begin doing today, even if it's not the ideal version? Joanna, mm-hmm. thank you so much for your question. Let's get Lewis some more water here, and then we'll move on to some social media questions here in a minute. But before we do that, Jordan No More, our talented filmmaker... He's running the ones and twos and threes and fours over there. <laughs> he has a question for Lewis. If you want to grab the microphone, Jordan, I thought uh, this was a perfect icebreaker question from mm-hmm. Jordan here. All right, Lewis, I got the question for you. Uh, how do you feel about the fictional version of yourself in the show We Crashed? And uh, <laughs> did they give you a chance to play yourself? Oh, man. I, I wanted to... Uh, they reached out to me about this and they're like, hey, we're doing this scene and... I was like the only person that interviewed her, like ever, I think, for like a long form interview. Wow. Um, Rebecca, one of the, the co-founders. And so she like didn't do anything after that. And so they were like, this is, and so I heard that, um, gosh, what's the actress name? Anne Hathaway, right? I heard that she mm-hmm. kind of watched this interview over and over again and modeled her mannerisms from this interview. Mm. And so when um, they reached out to us, I was like, oh, I definitely want to play myself. You know, I was yeah. like, I definitely like, give me the chance to play myself. I'll just reenact it. Yeah. And uh, they said they're not letting in anyone play themselves. And so I was like, okay, cool. As long as you put the school of greatness in there and, and promote back to the brand, then you guys can use this kind of reference. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think they, I mean, they just had me ask them one question with some other guy, you know, it was in a moment, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah. yeah, it was yeah. fun. I, I remember watching that. I saw you or the fictionalized version yeah, of you. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. It was such a great show, too. And it was awesome to see the school. <laughs> yeah, it, was in there. Yeah. it was fun. Let's move on to some social media questions here. Looks like uh, Latrina has a question for us. How do we break free from procrastination and behaviors that don't move us towards our goals? Lewis, how do we Ooh. not let our amateur procrastination turn pro? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I think it's I think it's really getting clear. I think the enemy of greatness is is lacking a meaningful mission. Um, and there's a difference between success and greatness. And I think you guys can resonate with this. Mm-hmm. My whole life, I wanted to be successful. That's mm-hmm. what I was driven to do and to be. But it was based off of a wound. So I was driven to succeed, Ryan. To to look good, to be respected, to get the audience, to make more money, so that people would appreciate me. Essentially, right. Yeah. Though, because it was from a wound where people, I didn't feel appreciated, you know? And I didn't feel seen. And I accomplished all these successes and it still didn't feel good. It mm. still didn't feel like I was enough. Yeah. In success, I've learned, it's not bad or wrong. It's by itself, 
selfish. Success is for me to accomplish something. It's for me to win. It's for me to make a certain amount of money. Greatness, what I've learned over the last 10 years since I was realizing success by itself doesn't work, greatness is about how can I accomplish my mission but be in service to others along the way. And as Kobe said when I interviewed him, it's making an impact on the people around you where they then impact the people around them and it continues, that's greatness. It's not about winning. It's not about succeeding. It's not about making the money, getting the downloads, whatever it is. It's about doing those things in service of others. That's greatness. So I think it's reevaluating your goals and saying, is this a part of a bigger, meaningful mission in my life? And a meaningful mission is defined by impacting the people around you. It's not just about what you want. So yes, it includes what you want, but it must be in the service of generosity and impact in others around you as well. Yeah. Mm, that's it. Like, I love that. Health is not primarily defined by the abstinence from unhealthy activities. It's it's defined by your your immersion into activities that are life-giving and, and abstaining from unhealthy things, bad habits, and so on. That's kind of like an organic response to you having a, a healthy point of focus, right? So if you're looking at actions you're taking that are unhealthy, things you want to quit doing, things you want to let go of, ask yourself, well, what, why? Is it because someone else made me feel guilty about it? Is it because someone else says that I'm a bad person for doing these things? Mm. Do I want to let go of these things for myself? And if I do, that means I'm presupposing the beauty of some other life I would rather be living if my time wasn't being occupied with this. Mm. What does that life look like? Because you got to have a vision that's compelling enough yes. to make you say, yeah, this is holding me back from something that's so much better. Guilt won't do it. There are possibilities born out of love and passion that simply don't arise mm -hmm. out of a sense of guilt and externally imposed duty. What is that mission? Yes. What is that vision that compels you? Yeah, and listen, you know, I mean, it's going to be challenging either way. But if we don't love something enough, if we're not excited about it, the challenges are going to make us feel burnt out and overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. You guys have a lot going on. You got a you got a big business, a big community, you've got expenses, you've got costs, you've got all these things happening. If you didn't truly have a vision or a mission more meaningful than just let's be successful and make money, mm -hmm. the challenges and adversities that come, not every day, but when they come in seasons, it'd be like exhausting and draining. But because you do what you do for your community, you do it for a bigger mission than just self. Yes, it's for self, and others. Because of that, it allows you to get up with more excitement every day, more con more consistently, yeah. even when you've got stresses and challenges in life, whatever might happen. So that's what I think. It's just shifting your goals into a meaningful mission. Yeah. You know, one other thing I say, building on this about the, pro the procrastination piece, is that um, procrastination isn't necessarily a sign that you're being lazy. It might be a sign that you're being lazily ambitious. And what I mean by that is, Lazily ambitious is when you set a goal that's like really big and, and it sounds flattering, but it's so vague. You don't mm. have to do anything, right? My goal is to really be healthy. No, you got to be clear. My, my, my goal is to be free. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's lazily ambitious because it's a positive goal, but it's not defined enough to hold me accountable to anything, right? Mm. And when you're setting goals, it's important that you set your goals for what you know you can achieve on the worst day of the week. 
what I, what I see holding a lot of people back when it comes to procrastination is they set these huge goals. Like I've never worked out a day in my life. I'm completely out of shape, but starting tomorrow, mm. I'm going to train for a marathon and I'm going to mm. run five miles a day. Well, what's going to happen? You're going to procrastinate. When tomorrow comes, it's going to feel really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. However, if you scale that back and say, all right, I know that every week, I'm going to have a terrible day where everyone's needy and all kinds of things are going wrong. What can I do on that day? Well, I can get up, I can put on my clothes and I can go run for two blocks. All right, that's my commitment. I'm doing that every day. Now, when I have that bad day, I'm going to tell myself I can at least run two blocks and I go out there and do it. But what happens when I actually get out there? It's actually easier to procrastinate the process of going back home, changing my clothes, getting in the shower. That's easy to procrastinate it's easier to keep going forward and say, I'm going to keep running and just do a couple of miles while I'm out here, right? So when you set smaller goals, you give yourself the opportunity to build momentum. But sometimes we fear doing that because we don't want to insult the craft. Mm -hmm. I don't want to insult the craft. I don't want to insult physical fitness fitness by setting this small laughable goal. But that small laughable goal is what allows you to become a powerful person over time through momentum. So start small. Yeah, and I, I also think a lot of people just lack clarity, like you said, they're not defining what they want specifically. And yeah. I, and a meaningful mission is what is it in one sense that you're trying to do with this season of life? Mm-hmm. Again, that can be, I want to run a marathon in two years, but this season of life, this is my meaningful mission. It's to do whatever, uh, you know, a half a mile a day for three days a week mm-hmm. for this period of time. So I, I, I talk about getting super clear on what your meaningful mission is. I don't care if you're from the first caller who is trying to leave the job that she didn't like, what is the meaningful mission and get clarity. And this is a good practice for everyone watching live or at home or listening later. In one sentence, what is it for this season of life for you? For me, I'm very clear. In one sentence, my meaningful mission is to serve and impact 100 million lives every single week to help them improve the quality of their life. That's it. It's very clear. Mm -hmm. That is my meaningful mission. And it makes it easy to say yes and no to things Mm -hmm. that either serve or don't serve that mission. So I don't feel like I'm procrastinating because I know where I'm heading. It excites me. It gives me energy. And I know that I need to keep growing and developing and empowering others around me in order to get closer to that meaningful mission. But a lot of people in one sentence, they're not clear on Mm -hmm. what they want in their life that excites them, that is invigorating and all those different things. So one sentence, what are you trying to do? Mm. Yeah, I, I love, uh, you have a number in there, 100 million. Yes. <laughs> and it, it's not about the numbers. Mm-hmm. But what that number does is it helps you gain just that much more clarity on what your mission and is. And focus. And yeah. it helps me make decisions on, okay, there are certain things that will support getting to that number and other things, maybe I don't need to do them right now because it's not amplifying that process. Yeah. So it's just getting clarity on it. Yeah. And if it if it's 80 million one week, like you're not going to yeah, beat exactly. yourself up. No. Yeah. It's not about, and it's not about the result right. of like, am I deserving or worthy if I accomplish this goal or not? I don't know if I have time to tell one more story. I heard the dinger there, but um, <laughs> do I need to move on? Or no, no, please. I, I, okay. that's, that's the key. Tell the story. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I was, when I was in 2008, I was on my sister's couch in Ohio in Columbus uh, I just got injured playing arena football. I had a surgery in my wrist and I had a full arm cast from here to here for mm. six months in this position. Mm. Kind of like the guy from Rookie of the Year, that movie, if you ever saw that movie. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Classic. Um, yeah, but I didn't have super arm, arm strength once I got the cast off. Um, and it was um, during that time in 2008, I saw the the Olympics. Um, 
Michael Phelps, you know, coming mm-hmm. out and crushing it and all these different things. And and at like 2 or 3 a.m. one night, I saw Team Handball, this sport that I'd never seen in my life before. I saw it on TV and I was mesmerized. And I was like, I have a new goal. I have a new mission in my life. I'm going to make the Olympics in Team Handball. Team Handball, for those that don't know, don't know is kind of like... Um, it's kind of like water polo on a basketball court, two teams playing against each other with no water. Um, <laughs> so that's what it kind of looks like visually. It's like water polo on yeah. a basketball court with no water. Anyways, no one knows what the sport is in America. That's why I said, here's an opportunity because there's no one playing this sport. Mm. So there's not much competition. So even though I've never played it, I had this dream that I'm going to make the USA team and I'm going to go to the Olympics. This became a new mission in my life. No joke. Awesome. I'm 20, I don't know, 24, something like that. And so I got clear, this is my mission. Make the Olympics with Team USA for handball. Mm. Mm. What I did was I, like, I started researching. Okay, is there a team in Columbus, Ohio? There was no team. So I said, where is the best team in the country? It was in New York City. I said, well, I don't have any money. So I need to get clear that I need to make a certain amount of money so I can move to New York City. Once I make this money, I will move to New York City. That took two years, and I moved to New York City. Mm. Then I showed up at practice one time, and I was the only American at this practice. And they said, um, why are you here? And I said, <laughs> I said, I'm here to learn handball, to make the USA national team, and go to the Olympics. They all laughed at me. And they said, this is our last practice of the year. We just won the national championships last week. We're just kind of here hanging out today. Come back in three months if you're serious when we start practice again. Mm. I stuck around the whole summer, came back. First day of practice, I said, my name is Lewis House. I'm here to learn handball, make the USA national team, and go to the Olympics. They all laughed at me again. But the more I showed up, they started to invest in me. They started to coach me. They started to mentor me. Nine months later, I make... My U- the USA team. I go to the Pan Am Championships in Argentina and Buenos Aires, and I play against Brazil uh, and Argentina national teams who had gone to the Olympics. So I had a taste. Mm. For the next eight years of my life, I traveled the world. I competed with Team USA. I went to Israel. I went to Luxembourg. I went to the UK, Mexico, Canada, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay. I was in training camps for weeks, dedicating myself, training, playing, all this stuff. Eight years goes by. We still haven't qualified to the Olympics. It's a team sport. Mm. The dream didn't come true. But just because the result, the dream didn't come true, doesn't mean the experience wasn't a dream come true. Eight years of lessons, eight years of overcoming adversity, eight years of growing, learning, developing, wearing USA across my chest and singing the national anthem before an international game. The things I learned about myself was mm. a dream come true, even though the result never happened for me. Wow. So it's not always about accomplishing the result of 100 million lives weekly or going to the Olympics or getting a new job, whatever it might be. It's about who you become in that process mm. and just loving the process. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the story. No, that's great, man. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, what I love about that story too, real quick, and then we'll move on. Sorry, Josh. Um, y- you've got this goal of making the Olympic team. And then like, there's these other little plans that you have to form yeah, to get course. to that end goal. So yeah. that's, yeah, I think it's something to take away there too. Let's wrap up this segment with mm. another Twitter question. This one's from Zaya. I want to let go of self-judgment, but I'm still struggling. How can I move past this to reach my fullest potential? Lewis, you were kind of talking about this earlier. Mm-hmm. 
success that makes you miserable is failure, right? Because mm. you can get all, <laughs> yeah. all the it numbers, is. right? You can get the million dollars, $10 million, $100 million. You know, plenty of people like this, all the followers in the world, the right car, the right house, the right friends that look good on the outside, mm-hmm. the right influence, the right metrics, and yet be utterly miserable. Yeah. And you actually talk about this in the book. Could you expand on the podcast? Yeah, it's interesting. There's some like meme or quote going around on the internet. I'm not sure who said it. It's probably Josh. You know, we're all just right. like saying something. We're regurgitating everything he says. Um, <laughs> that it was like someone said somewhere, uh, you know, winning at the wrong thing is really losing. You know what I mean? It's like that's the ultimate failure, like you said, when you like go and build a business that you really don't care about mm-hmm. or when you go do something you really don't care about, you were successful. And then it was kind of like, well, I just wasted all this time. It wasn't what I really wanted to do. Um, and I think we just got to get clear on the meaningful stuff. I saw another interview from a guy who's probably like in his eighties or nineties, sold a ton of, like sold a massive business. I don't know. He was probably a billionaire. And someone asked him like, what is success at this age? And I thought it was interesting. His, his response, he said, success is your kids wanting to hang out with you. Not because you have money. Ooh. Ooh. Not because you have money or because you were successful, but they just want to hang out with you at, you know, 80 and 90. They call you twice a week yeah. just to check in. Yes. Because you were a good father. Yeah. Right now, I'm just trying to get my daughter to leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's a good problem to have. success for Josh. <laughs> I mean, no, and I, so I think it's, um, the original question was around the, the was the um, how, how opinions can, of others, the judgment. Yeah, so the self-judgment thing, which you mm-hmm. talk a lot about. Mm-hmm. So I want to let go of self-judgment, but I'm struggling. And what that really tells me about Zaya here is we often cling to the self-judgment. But I think that a lot of the self-judgment is shame based on other people's judgment. Of yes. course, judgment is just a mirror that reflects the insecurities of the judge. Mm-hmm. And if you're judging yourself, it's reflecting your own insecurities. Yeah. It's holding up a mirror to yourself. For me, it's just going back to, is this useful and helpful? Feedback mm-hmm. and having coaching is helpful and useful. Mm-hmm. Judging yourself and obsessing in the mirror or constantly self-critical is not useful and helpful for you feeling abundant. And we must be willing to think a thought in the world about the vision, the intention, the things we want to create, and then draw back in with a positive emotion. Mm. And if we want to get into flow, if we want to get into love, if we want to get into abundance. So again, this is not right or wrong, good or bad. It's just, is this useful for you? Is this self-judgment, self-criticism mm. helping you? And maybe you're getting some positive consequences from it, but at the end of the day, if you're feeling stressed and anxious, that does not serve you. Yeah, It does not serve you and your meaningful mission, and it doesn't serve the people around you when you judge self. When you are comparing and judging self, you're hurting yourself, and therefore you're doing a disservice to the people around you. So just ask yourself, is this helping me or hurting me? And start healing why you judge yourself. Owning why you judge yourself and start accepting who you are. And if you don't like something about yourself, you just ask yourself, can I evolve and change this? Mm. What can I do to improve this? Maybe I am, you know, lacking something in some area. Okay, let me get support or a coach or a mentor or a guide to give me some game plan and start taking action. You know, I used to be very judgmental and critical of myself because I had a lot of fears. Hmm. Something I talk about in the book is creating a list of your fears, your own fear list. And if you want to build more self-worth, more self-confidence, 
when you first write down and see, okay, I'm terrified of public speaking. I'm terrified of salsa dancing. I'm terrified of learning an instrument and fumbling around. I'm terrified of, of singing in public. I'm terrified of being vulnerable with people. Okay, when I address it and I write down fear list, in order to become fearless, it just takes you going one by one and overcoming them by going all in on them. Mm. So public speaking was not something I could do. I could not stand in front of three of you guys and in a small group and just present something for a minute without stuttering, stumbling, feeling insecure, and, and feeling stupid. Because I believed that I was the dumbest person in every room. Mm. Now, I still try to get mm. into rooms where I'm not the smartest person, but I don't believe I'm stupid. I know I'm wise. And so I've reinterpreted the meaning of stupid into actually wisdom. But what I did, I was just like, all right, I am deficient of public speaking. So let me, what I do, I found a mentor, a guy that was a professional public speaker. And I said, what actions should I take? He said, if you want to overcome your fear of public speaking, join Toastmasters, which is a public speaking class that are all around the world. They're like 50 bucks a year. And if you want to become great at it and overcome the fear, you got to go every single week. Don't just dabble. Don't just go once every couple months. Every week, obsess about it. Film yourself. Watch it back. Have a coach tell you what you did that you can improve on. Treat it like a sport. Hmm. TK can know what I'm talking about. You know, these guys don't know about oh, that man, game film. Like, you know what I'm <laughs> Treat it like a sport, like an athlete of your fears. Hmm. Film yourself. Create scenarios where you put yourself in humiliation so that you realize, I'm okay. I'm still alive. Maybe it was the most uncomfortable thing. It was hell in the hallways. Mm. But man, okay, I'm proud of myself for the effort of actually showing up. So every week for a year, I went to Toastmasters. And the first six months, it was horrible, miserable, mm. terrifying. Um, but by the end of the year, I had a lot more confidence. And I started getting paid within six months after that year to speak publicly when I never thought was possible. So when you overcome one fear that, psychologically or emotionally holds you back based on judgment, self-criticism, and you overcome it by going all in on it, you feel like you have a superpower now. You feel even more yeah, confident sure. because you overcame the thing that was holding you back the most. You use that in every area of life now. So I did that in public speaking. I did it in salsa dancing. Again, I was terrified to dance. I was, you know... White boy from Ohio, man. It's not many, not many of the white boys from Ohio. Salsa no, that dancing, Josh you know what I can't relate with. <laughs> and I was living in a little studio apartment above a jazz club in Columbus, Ohio, that my brother got me for two hundred fifty bucks a month when I was in college. Mm -hmm. And because um, he would go stay there sometimes and play jazz, and so he knew the owner. So I would go down and I'd watch jazz. But once a week, they had a live salsa, live salsa band, and all the salsa dancers from all of Ohio would come, you know, once a week to Columbus and dance. And I would go down there, kind of like a creeper in the back of the room, just kind of watching, <laughs> but not creepy. I was just like observing and just watching the band play and the music and all the dancers. And I was like, this is unbelievable what they're doing right now. But it's a different culture. It's a different language. It's a, it's a dance I've never seen before. And I was like 23 and I was like, this is unbelievable. But I was so terrified to put one step on the dance floor to even try. Because I knew... I'm going to make these myself look like a fool. All these women are going to be like, you know, I'm stepping on their feet and I'm just going to embarrass myself. For three months, I went down there once a week and would just watch. Mm. And people started to come up to me and ask me like, hey, come out and dance. And I was like, nah, I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want to, I don't want to make you look bad, right? <laughs> <laughs> but really it's making me look bad. I was mm. afraid. 
And when we don't have a skill or a competence around something, it's not bad. It just means we've got to go all in on it. After three months of, of going down there and watching, one girl finally grabs my arm and drags me. I'm like resisting it. I'm like, no. I'm like trying to pull back. I'm like, no. She drags me on the dance floor. Oh, wow. And we go to the middle of the dance floor. And I was just like in terror. Terror. And I'm sweating. And I'm like, ah, what do I do? And she's like, just look at me. Look down. And follow this basic step. And I am stepping on her. I'm bumping into her. I'm hitting people around me. <laughs> I am like a, seven a feet bull tall. in a you know, candy shop or whatever they call it. You know, it's like yeah. I'm just... And I'm just like, I'm just feeling like so embarrassed in the middle of the dance floor. After, I don't know, three to five minutes, she's like, Lewis, look up. I look up. She goes, look around. And I look around and everyone's dancing around me and no one is looking at me. No one's pointing their finger and laughing at me saying like, what, a, what an idiot. What does this guy think he's doing here? Mm-hmm. No one cares about me. They're mm. all having fun in their own experience. Wow. Now, even if a couple people did see me and give a couple stares at one point, I'm like, oh, what's this guy doing? He mm. doesn't know how to dance. They moved on pretty yeah. quickly into their yeah. own world. Yep. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'm still alive. There's you know no I mean? real danger there. There's right? no danger. Mm. It's emotional and psychological fears that hold us back from feeling abundance from feeling flow that experiencing new things and if i didn't take that courageous step for me to do that it would have not unlocked a new world because after that i go okay i'm still alive Mm -hmm. i'm still here yes um and three months of fear held me back from taking action but now i'm here i'm all in so i started going to group classes i started doing Mm one-on-one classes i was going out three four times a week anywhere i could find a place and just dance i would find someone on the street and say do you salsa dance and start dancing put music on (laughs) then after about six months of obsession i mean i was all in i was like i'm an athlete i'm training i'm getting coaching i'm doing the whole thing in six months i was like pretty fluent as a salsa dancer where this is different than ballroom. This is like social club salsa Mm -hmm. where you can go up to someone say, do you want to dance? And then you could dance all night and you understand the language of movement and coordination with each other. Then I said, okay, I'm comfortable in Columbus, Ohio. I know the right people to ask. I got to get out of my comfort zone. So I started traveling the world And I said, I'm going to go to the top salsa clubs in the world. I did this for years Mm. because I realized there was still levels to fear and anxiety. And I said, I'm going to go to places where I don't speak the language, where I don't know anyone, where I'm not comfortable. I'm going to go walk into the salsa club and I'm going to observe and see who is the most talented female dancer. I'm going to go walk right up to her and ask her Mm -mm. for a dance. Wow. Terrifying because no one likes to be rejected or humiliated or Mm. said no to. But the more I did that, the more confident I got because they would say no, a lot of them would say no to me almost every time because <laughs> they didn't recognize me. I'm a tall white boy in another world, another country, in another culture trying to say, will you dance in a different, in an English language when they're not speaking English. And my whole goal was by the end of the night, can I get that person who said no to me to come ask me to dance mm. and draw them in and attract them to want to dance with me because they see, oh, he actually can dance and he's trying and doing a great job and all these other people he's dancing with, oh, he's making them look pretty good. So I would do these kind of psychological games with myself to overcome these irrational fears and build confidence. Mm. I did it in public speaking, salsa dancing in so many different ways and that gave me more courage. Again, mm. it's just about what's useful in helping you draw in your meaningful mission faster. 
and how do you feel better about yourself so you're not as judgmental and critical about self? It's because you don't have the skills. Go master the skills. Hmm. Yeah. If you're scared of rejection, go practice rejection. Exactly. If you're scared of public speaking, go practice public speaking. If you're scared of dancing, go dancing. I love that, man. <laughs> I, I freaking love that. The, the one thing I want to tell Zay here about self-judgment, practice, and this is scary too, practice uh, self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy in the moment mm-hmm. to judge ourselves and say, I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. I can't believe I did that. And it makes us feel like, well, at least we're taking responsibility for something. But really, you're just kind of damaging yourself. Mm-hmm. If you can take a moment and give yourself some compassion, and there's so many moments of yes. compassion you gave oh, yourself in that, in that dancing story, um, that is what is going to help you overcome that self-judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the thing I'm in right now, I know I heard the ding, but I th- the thing I'm in right now is learning Spanish. I've always wanted to be fluent in Spanish. Are you fluent in Spanish? No. I, <laughs> no. I just feel like you get all the quotes, you're fluent in Spanish. A little bit of English. You know, yeah. no. But don't worry, they're, they're quoting him over in, uh, in Spain exactly. too. Exactly. Translated it. Exactly. That's great. <laughs> And so that's, you know, it's having compassion right now. You know, my girlfriend's Mexican. Uh, her family all speaks Spanish. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a vision of mine and a dream of mine to, to one day be able to go in any Spanish-speaking country or speak to anyone in Spanish and have a full-on conversation and be like fully comprehensive and be like, wow, we just had this beautiful moment. You know, walking to some store in the middle of nowhere, Mexico and talking to a, you know, a grandmother and just be like, by myself, can I have this conversation with this person? and build this connection. It's a dream of mine, but I have compassion with myself because I sound like an idiot still. Mm. I still don't understand. I still, and I've been like trying for years to learn and it's like, okay, it's all right, but I'm improving, you yeah. know, and, and yep. appreciate the improvement and the effort and the little wins. Like I was in an Uber in um, Austin uh, a couple of days ago and I had two different Ubers to get around to different um, interviews. And both the people who picked me up spoke Spanish. And I didn't have my girlfriend there to have a crutch. So I go, okay, I'm speaking Spanish the whole time, 20 minutes. And I'm like conversating, you know, I'm having a conversation. It's very broken, but I was like, you know what? I didn't back out. I had the courage. I made a fool of myself with certain things and I'm still alive. And look at the confidence I'm gaining by little by little doing this. So it's just immersing yourself in these things that are emotionally holding you back. It gives you more confidence. Yeah. Beast. Yeah. Pretty soon you're going to be praying that whole rosary in Spanish. Ah, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, one thing I'll say is uh, when when my wife and I were moving, uh, I had this box uh, for the books that we were donating. And when she was taking one of those boxes out, I saw something on the top that looked familiar. And I said, wait, 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 wait. And I went and looked and that was a book that was supposed to be in the keeping pile. Mm. And I says, well, hold on, give me a second. And so I, I sorted through the box just to double check. And there were two more books that were supposed to be in the keeping pile. And I took those out and I says, all right, you can let it go. And the moral of that story is it's much easier to let things go when you've made an agreement with yourself about the parts you're going to keep holding on mm. to. One of the reasons why funerals are so powerful as a cathartic ritual is because instead of just saying goodbye, to someone that we love, we take the time to exchange stories about Mm. what they meant to us and how we're going to allow their legacy to continue living on in our own lives. And that's our way of saying, I will hold on to these parts of you forever. Mm. And now I can say goodbye. It's a lot easier to do that. And so when it comes to letting go of your self-judgment, I would make a list with two columns. And those would be those aspects of self-judgment that are worth holding on to because they actually reflect my values, the ways in which I want to improve. And those aspects of self-judgment 
that actually are a form of introjection where I have internalized other people's assumptions and expectations toward me. And then I would throw out everything in that second column. And when I hold on to the first column, I'll divide that up into judgments about myself and judgments about the behavior I want to engage in constructively framed and forward facing. What I mean by this is there's a difference between saying I can do better and I'm a terrible person for having done poorly in the first place. There's a difference between saying I want to be healthy and I'm so bad for all the unhealthy Mm -hmm. stuff I've done in the past. And so any self-judgment that is about you and your ontological status as a person, throw that out. If it's a judgment about your behavior and the things you want to do, that's a good kind of judgment because now you're not beating yourself up. You're not condemning yourself for your past. You're not making blanket statements about your personality, but you're saying, this is the intention that I set for the life I want to live. Lewis, the thing I always say about you when someone asks me about you, you're a master mentee. Oh, yeah. Mm. And your stories that you just discussed here, whether it is learning Spanish or salsa dancing mm-hmm. or handball. Public or speaking or whatever. Public yeah. speaking. Mm-hmm. It's about the immersion as a mentee. Uh-huh. Showing up and not being afraid of being embarrassed. Not being afraid of being afraid. Yes. Because that fear will be there. And as soon as you are not afraid of the fear, the fear itself goes away. Yes. I know that sounds tautological, but ultimately what you're doing is you're immersing yourself in these situations. And, yeah, and, and as you mm-hmm. immerse yourself in those situations, the the mentee then transforms quite often into the mentor, not because you feel like you now need to go out and drag people into salsa dancing, but now you're the mentor mm-hmm. from being the persistent mentee. Yeah. As my friend Rory Baden says, we are perfectly positioned to help the person we once were. Mm. So because I was afraid of all these different things and self-doubt consumed my life, and I said, I just no longer want to feel insecure and doubting myself in all these different ways, well, I put in the reps and the work, and it's an ongoing journey. And as you guys know, the more you learn, the less you realize you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's keeping a beginner's mind and a mentee mind at all levels and all seasons of life. Um, But that's why once I started to learn how to overcome many of these things, I was just like, I believe the world is crippled by self-doubt, you know? And I think self-doubt is the killer of all dreams. When we doubt ourselves, it causes us to hold ourselves back energetically, Mm -hmm. action-wise. We might still get things done, but it's limiting our abilities to be greater than I think we could be. Mm -hmm. And so when we get to the root of understanding what self-doubt is, how to face the fear, embrace it, and know you're still going to be okay on the other side until it goes away, that's when I feel like you can really start to unlock your potential in a bigger way. Yeah. There's a book called The King, Warrior, Magician. And in there it says, you know, doubt kills the warrior. Mm. And I mean, it is it is important to learn how to kind of deal with, because we all self-doubt, but learning how to deal with it is what will exactly. Through, yeah. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, Lewis Howes. Mm. Yeah. Oh, man. You want to stay Thank you, guys. <laughs> the, the show is called The School of Greatness. The brand new book is called The Greatness Mindset. I'll hold it up if you're watching the video version. Man. Lewis, thank you so much for spending this time with us, answering these questions with us. We love and appreciate you. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much, man. Welcome back to The Minimalists. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok because we are cool and hip and have a TikTok. 
We are at The Minimalist on TikTok, also Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can follow us there with your social media questions. Now, during the lightning round, this is where we each have 60 seconds to answer your question with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. You can find those show notes, by the way, over at theminimalists.com slash podcasts. Alabama, who's our question from today? This one comes from Aditya. She says, needing a thing creates worry, but doesn't that conflict with having ambition? All right, before we put any time on the clock here, let me be clear about what this is a response to. So we put up a video on TikTok and it was, this is only part of it. Part of it also said that wanting a thing creates wonder. Needing Mm. the thing creates wonder worry. And it was making that distinction, something that Lewis was talking about with us today in our expanded conversation on the private podcast. When you get to do something, you want to do something, Mm. you feel that sense of awe, that sense of wonder. When it's like, oh, I have to do this. Well, that becomes a a type Mm. of prison. Mm -hmm. And you start to worry when you've imprisoned yourself. So that was the fundamental essence of the video that this person is questioning. But then they brought in a third component, and that's that component of ambition. So, Professor Sean, let's put 60 seconds on the clock for my good friend, Ryan Nicodemus. You can let me go first. All right, let's do it. Um, My pithy answer is this. To need a thing is to pretend you are incomplete without it. So to need something, there's nothing wrong with needing something. We, we would never tell people that, hey, you shouldn't need anything. It's more about yeah. when you need something, be very clear on why you need that thing. I need water. I need food. I need shelter. I need good friends in my life. Like that's okay. But once we start to need something, we start to feel incomplete. Oh, he did that in half the time. He just mm-hmm. dribbled right between Ooh. the legs, dunked it right over TK Coleman. Didn't who, even throw a pass. I was I was calling for the ball. He was like, <laughs> I got this. <laughs> well, I'm going to pass it to TK right now because he has 60 seconds to give you something pithy. Ambition does not require attachment. Ambition is when you say, it is in accord with my highest excitement to pursue the following path. Attachment is when you say, and if I fail, I'm going to hate myself and hate everybody else Mm. for not getting what I wanted. Ambition is when you say, this is the adventure that makes me come alive. Attachment is when you say, and if I don't win, then I'm not gonna be well. Attachment is rooted in self-doubt. It's rooted in fear and mistrust. Ambition in its unhealthy mode of expression can be rooted in those things, but it doesn't have to be. You don't have to pursue a life you love from a place of hating where you are now. Ambition, when healthfully expressed, can simply be a playful and joyful expression of your enthusiasm for possibility. You can go after something, not because you hate yourself and you hate your life, but simply because you enjoy the creative process and all of the beauty that it brings. I love it, man. I feel like we should have a little snapping sound effect that uh, Mahalik should put in. I love how Lewis House was doing that. (laughs) (laughs) You can give me 60 seconds. Ryan, I went back to the vault for this one. 2011, Mm. our first book, Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. There's a line in that book, and it is this. It is not ambition that sets a man apart. It is the distance he is prepared to go. Mm. Now, obviously, that's gender neutral woman apart, person apart, 
It's not ambition. In fact, ambition ends up being a byproduct of the distance you are prepared to go. If you find something truly compelling, the way that Lewis Howes found handball compelling or salsa dancing compelling, these things that he talked about on the private podcast, Mm -hmm. he found them so compelling. He didn't need ambition to do those things. He found them compelling enough to actually immerse himself in it. He was prepared to go the distance. And from an outside observer, he may look ambitious, but what he really was, was devoted to that particular task activity. And that is what took him the distance. Yeah. Mm. Mm. We'll uh, check in with the Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. You know, on the private podcast, each week we do a minimalist home tour. We go into the homes of Ryan and TK and and my home. We're also going to be opening up to our patrons and we can go into some of their homes as well. If you want a sample of that, we have it up on YouTube right now. You can find it. It's called the Minimalist Living Room Tour. You can just go to minimalists.com slash living room. It will take you straight there. If you want to take a, a look inside one of our homes, do a living room tour, and we also talk about some of the things that we own there as well. So if you want a minimalist home tour, an updated one, you can find it on our YouTube channel or just at theminimalists.com slash living room. Dude, my favorite home tour that we've done is when me and Mariah did our apartment. Have you seen that, TK? I think I was here for that. No. No, I mean, it was a couple years ago, but I mean, it was just like floating around on the internet. But long story short, Mariah and I were moving, so our apartment was empty. And I got this, or maybe it was Jordan's great idea, but we had this idea like, oh, we're going to like film as if minimalists don't own anything. And it was complete satire. It was hilarious. So, like, it was one of my favorite things that we've ever done. He truly owned nothing. He was using his yoga mat as like a bath towel and... (laughs) Uh, they were pretending they were sitting on furniture, miming, playing it's the so piano. Funny. Is that yeah. the one where your grandmother was like, yes. I think you want to let people yeah. know that's not real. Oh, God love Grams. Yeah. She was like, I saw your video about you owning nothing. That's just not true. You own things. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> like you're right. Uh, comedy? Uh, <laughs> ben, we got any comments right. from the live stream? We sure do. We have a comment here from Dr. Ben. He said, I just tuned in to hear the part about dancing and looking at others instead of imagining others judging you. Great. I enjoy this a lot. Mm. Yeah, Lewis was so great. You can tune into the full private podcast, see our full conversation with him. You can also check out his book. It's called The Greatness Mindset. Let's tune in to one question from the Patreon live stream. Here's a question from Claudio. I often find myself trying to take over a struggling business, then later being afraid of having to close it down. It's like I'm always expecting to have the rug pulled out from under me. How can I unpack this fear? Mm, So I have that fear of the rug always being pulled out from underneath of me. And for me, it roots back to childhood. It's like no matter what, like before the age of 18, before I was able to move out and like make my own decisions, something great would be happening and then something bad would accompany accompany it. So for me, it roots back to this childhood trauma. We're like, I'm at my uh, grandma's, it's, it's Christmas, we're having a good time and then you know, uh, I got a call from my stepdad. Hey, your mom's in jail. She got a DUI. It's like, oh, like, and this is just one of many examples. And that was like the, um, that was the, you know, the, the, the PG example that I could give. Cause there's so many others that mm-hmm. I don't want to really get into. But for me, what I've realized is a couple things. Um, sometimes there is no rug. 
like the rug is imaginary, but let's say there is something that could be swept out from underneath of you. I have to tell myself like, hey, Ryan, your parents aren't in control anymore. Like you are in control. You get to make the decisions. And if something happens, that's okay. But no one is going to take this rug out from underneath of you except yourself. I think the whole world is an etch-a-sketch. And as soon as I realized that, I felt the same way as he did, as Ryan did. The rug can always be swept out from under me, and it's going to be. Mm. But then when you realize it's going to be, no matter what, on a long enough timeline, that etch-a-sketch is going to get shooken. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you shake that etch-a-sketch, what happens? It's a clean start. It's fresh all over again. And so... Whenever I look at the world, I recognize that everything that we've done, every book that we've written, every podcast that we've done, every tour that we've done. I mean, think about even the tours that we've done, Ryan. Most of the original tour stops, we never filmed any of that. Yeah. It's all gone. Yeah. And that's okay. It's all going to be gone on a long enough timeline. And at first, that's upsetting. It's depressing. But when you step back and you look at it, it's incredibly freeing because you know that it is inevitable. Yeah. So why worry about the thing that's inevitable? Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, sometimes our fear is a sign that there are areas where we need to actually take the reins. Mm. And sometimes our fear is a sign that there are areas where we need to let go of the need to have control or rather that the illusion that we could have control in the first place. And I would take a look at the situations I'm in when I take over these struggling companies and I would ask myself, all right, what are the legitimately grounded fears where there are things I need to take control of? There are things I need to prepare for and plan for. And what are those things that fall into the category of me being afraid that a comet might strike the earth in 10 seconds and mm. take us all away? The things I can't do anything about and let go of the things in that second category and learn from your fear as they pertain to the things in that first category, and that allows you to move forward constructively. But yeah. when you parcel them out, you can escape that sense of being ambiguously confused. Isn't it funny how that fear that we, the story that we tell ourselves of things that could happen, like in a in a way, it's it's us giving ourselves certainty. It's mm -hmm. like this, um, I don't know, this primal um, this primal thing that we've always had as humans, like to to be on the lookout for predators, to be on the lookout for, uh, you know, dangerous waters, whatever it is. But it's like it transfers over to, oh, no, what if I don't, you know, make X amount of dollars next month? Yeah. And the thing about fear is it never actually serves you. If mm. you see that clear and present danger that we talked about earlier, the fear goes away and action appears and so any fear that we have, yes, it might be a signpost. It might tell us to be more prepared for the thing. But even if you're paralyzed by fear because you're in the woods and a bear is coming after you, that fear is not serving you there either. Right. If you can be prepared for the danger, then perhaps you can get away from the danger. But if you're paralyzed by fear, it's actually going to do the opposite of what you're hoping that the fear will do. Yeah. It won't prevent the harm. It will create a bunch of harm along the way until the inevitable does happen, yeah. which by the way, the inevitable always does happen. I want to check back in with the Patreon live stream here in a little bit, but first, Malabama, what do you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. 
Hi, Josh and Ryan. Um, I just wanted to share an experience I had with your listeners um, because I often think about um, what to do and situations with gift giving and gift receiving. And um, when my birthday rolled around this year, I really wanted to have a talk with um, some of my friends about how I wanted to celebrate and um, how I don't really want physical gifts because a lot of the times I don't use um, the things that they give me. And um, when we started talking about it, they actually, um, to my surprise, agreed. And they were actually talking about how they really don't even like to just aimlessly walk around the mall and just trying to kind of find something um, that they think I might like. And um, we all agreed that it was kind of a pointless and um, aimless, um, unintentional way to shop for somebody. And um, I was really surprised at what they had to say about it and that they actually agreed not to do gifts this year. Um, so I just wanted to encourage everybody to have those discussions, even though they're hard, because you never know what they might say. And they might actually be relieved to hear that um, you don't want a gift and um, they can save money that way and just enjoy their time with you. Yeah, I just wanted to let everybody know that um, some people will actually agree with you, even if they're not minimalists. Hi, my name is Clara Dayhill. I'm from Amherst, Massachusetts. So I really enjoy your podcast. Um, I am in the military. I'm a member of the Coast Guard, and I'm really liking seeing the connection between minimal Muslim and being in the military. You know, we have the same uniform every day, really just a basic amount of stuff, and just having that freedom of everything you need, just keeping in what we call our sea bag, which is that green military-like backpack. Thank you, and I really enjoy your podcast. Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. We're here with Jordan No More, a.k.a. Jordan No More. Woo! Woo! A.k.a. No Jordan No More. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. We just got so deep on this podcast. <laughs> we got Professor Sean here. We got Malabama. Danny Unknown ran out of the building because it's on fire. I think it's because I smell. <laughs> the smoke? Fine. Nope, it's just Ryan. It's just me. <laughs> Ryan gave up showers for Lent. Oh my god! <sighs> <laughs> the irony is now he's covered in lint. <laughs> That's good. We That's got, quick. We got this talkaboutables segment that I want to go over with you. We got a couple talkaboutables today. I first want to talk to you about the millionaire minimalist. This blew my mind. Did you know that Chad Ochocinco is a millionaire? Yes, you probably knew that, but yeah. did you know that he is also a minimalist? Roll the video. Wow. I want to make enough money I can fly, fly, fly. fly private? Yeah. Shh. I ain't flying private. I'm spirit. Put me on spirit. Exit row. Window seat. That's all I need. As long as I get from point A to point B. I don't need private. Athletes more so. If you can get to a point in your career where your name becomes bigger than anything you can purchase... There's your value. Wow. My name itself, Ocho Cinco at one point, even still to this day, is bigger than... Why am I driving a Ferrari? Why am I driving a Rolls Royce and I'm Ocho? Oh, we talk about jewelry and watches and chains. Never bought real anything when I was playing. Never. What was the point? I went to Claire's. So all, so went, all yeah, you do... You, yes. For what? What am I doing it for? The women don't deal with you anyway because of who you are. Right. And then the other women who are really doing their homework don't Google how much you're making already. Right. Why am I buying a 
$50,000 watch. $80,000 watch. What time is it real quick, please? It's uh, 20 minutes to four. How much that cost me? Because time is free, so yeah. what I'm paying for it for? Right. For what? I'm Ocho. What's the point? Right. There's nothing I can buy that's bigger than my name alone. So it made no sense. But everybody's caught up in image and looking a certain way and being rich. It's me. It's pointless. You know how hard it is to live like that all the time consistently and be fly every day? Yeah. and Listen, eras of rappers. Think about the era before before us. Right. Everybody was flashy, stunned, stunned. And after 10 years, what happens? Same flashy, same stunned. Oh, you can't. It's impossible to sustain. Right. It's impossible. People, social media. Well, if I spin this bag, I'm going to just go make it back. It ain't like you think. No. People, they think the cure and the problem, the fix for the problem is, well, give me more money, I'm going to be all right. But the more you make, know you spend right if you have no discipline and no structure yes absolutely every time yes dude that's great first off i'm a huge Bengals fan <laughs> so talk about who chad ochocinco is so he's like uh he was just one of the best wide receivers that they had um yeah and i'll just leave it at that he was yeah he was a good player it's funny though i love what i just saw there because he went from you know i'm ojo mother and cinco like flashy doing all the crazy things to like it apparently had this awakening of like why am i doing this and um i think my favorite part of that video was watching shannon sharp basically kind of get disappointed at first but then slowly like you started to see him like his head tilt like oh yeah i see what you're saying the only thing that i disagreed with in the video itself is he's like my name is bigger than the logo Mm. totally agree with that sure but that applies to everyone who you are is bigger than any logo that you can wear. Mm. I don't care if your name is Jane or John or Jeff or Susan. It is bigger and better than the Lexus, than the Prada bag. It's better than the giant house, mm. than the Rolex. Because as he illustrated here, that Rolex is not going to buy you more time. Mm. Your time is free. Why are you spending $50,000 on it? Mm. Yeah, and I I think he would agree with you, but I think the only way his statement has power is if he keeps it about himself. The moment he names any other name Mm -hmm. and makes it about you, then it sounds like he's being condemning. It sounds like he's being privileged and insensitive and unempathetic. So he's got to keep it about him, right? Because he knows that ultimately his name is the product of what he invested in. His name is what he made of his name, right? Mm -hmm. He chose to take pride in his potential. He chose to develop his abilities to dedicate himself to excellence in his craft. And he built the name that makes him say, what the value of what I do the value of how I show up and my attitude and my craftsmanship is more powerful than any validation that some other company's name can give to me. And I think the wink and nod is, hey, I'm sharing this for a reason. I'm sharing this because I want this opinion to get out there. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that I can influence and inspire somebody else to rethink the message that they're getting from consumer culture. But he's got to keep it personal in order for it to have impact because the moment you take your story and turn it into a sermon, people start to get defensive. So wisdom says, I'm going to tell my story Mm -hmm. and I'm going to let who's ready to pick it up, pick it up. Man, I, I, I cannot believe the change that he's made. So he was Chad Johnson and his number was 85. And, um, he was one of the flashiest 
he was like a Terrell Owens, just like super flashy. Um, he did this like celebration where he literally hit a cell phone underneath w- the padding on the goalpost. And he got a t- he got a touchdown. He must have hit him on either end. I don't know. But he reaches underneath the padding, pulls out a cell phone, gets fined like $50,000 for like pretending that he's calling his mom to tell her about the touchdown or whatever. <laughs> but he was he was so flashy that he literally changed his name to his his jersey number, Chad Ochocinco. Right. Yeah. So the last thing that I'll say about this <laughs> video is it makes you realize that if he doesn't need it, he doesn't need the private jet. He doesn't need the flashy jewelry. He doesn't need the logo on a bag or on a piece of clothing. He can afford all of these things, but he doesn't have the need for it. And because he doesn't need it, he's not controlled by those things. Mm. He won't fly private. He'll fly spirit. I won't even fly spirit. (laughs) That's insane. But you know what? It's crazy. He's freer than I am then. Yeah. And that is the point. Bravo, Chad. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Let's talk about this new social media trend. It's called de-influencing. And is that so it's it wouldn't be DE hyphen influencing. It's just de-influencing. It depends on how you want to write. In fact, the image you got up on the screen right now has a hyphen in it. Mm. This trend is de-influencing. It's TikTok's new buzzword. This is what it means for brands. So I've got this uh, post here. We'll put it on the screen for you as well, but I'll just read it to you. It's mostly text. Scrolling is the gateway to shopping. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. The number of people searching for products on social media is up 43% since 2015 and 44% of Gen Z shops based on recommendations from influencers. Wow. But de-influencing is here to change that. And I saw several videos on TikTok, nothing that was compelling enough for us to play on here, but I'm going to talk a little bit about what de-influencing is, and then maybe we can have a discussion about it. Mm. De-influencing started on TikTok, where it has more than 101 million views. It's all about challenging the hype around cult products, particularly pricey ones, by telling people what they shouldn't buy rather than what you should and I think that's the essence of de-influencing. You have an influencer, someone who is influential, who has a following, who creates videos that do influence people. And quite often what happens, here's the makeup I'm using. And if you use my promo code, or even I'll just talk about here's the, the makeup I'm using because attention becomes currency in today's world, right? Yeah. So even if I'm not getting paid for it, here's what I'll recommend to you so I can get more and more and more attention. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with that, but it becomes tricky because we have all of these influencers who are usually being influenced by the money a corporation gives them to talk Mm. about their product. Mm. And it may even be an inferior product, but because they're getting paid to talk about it, what's happening? Here's the makeup that I am going to talk about on my channel. It may not even be the makeup I use. It's Mm. like Ryan and I both drive Toyotas, but if we were always talking about our BMWs that we don't own... (laughs) yeah just because BMW gave us money, well, that would be disingenuous. The way to take back control for these influencers to say, hey, you know what? Let me de-influence you. Let me tell you what brands are crap and why you're being lied to about some of these brands. And so that makes me think that Maybe the minimalists were the original de-influencers. We were de-influencing before it was cool. Before it was cool. Man, that 40... 
<laughs> that 40% number yeah. that you talked about, it was online, not online shopping, but uh, social media shopping, I think is what mm-hmm. it was. You know, there's like some marketing team that's like cheering on. Yeah, we did it. Yes. For up 42%. Like that's, that is crazy. It also makes me think that like, so you know how, um, <laughs> this is out there. It's, it's funny, like uh, uh, you get paid for marketing products, right? What if there's a, there's a whole new market created where you basically get a hold of a company and you're like, I won't bash your product <laughs> if you pay me. It's extortion. Yeah, right. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny, man, because influencer before TikTok and Instagram, before social media was something we assumed that everyone had. And the question was not, are you an influencer? Because you're part of the ecology, man. Mm-hmm. You're a human being. Of course, you're an influencer. The question is, are you influencing intentionally? Yeah. Are you influencing the people around you in a way that accords with your prior priorities and so forth? And uh, and then, you know, at some point, the meaning change to someone that has a certain amount of followers on mm-hmm. social media and influences people to buy products. And then everybody says, I want to be an influencer now. I want to be rich. I want to have a million followers, which equals love. And then I wear a pink hat and then everybody pays $20 for the pink hat and I'll take a cut of that. And now I get to have a a more fun job, right? Mm. And the influencer is an expression of the need to use new language to talk about an old reality because the old language was co-opted, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but Hey, I, I love it. I love the phenomenon great, language man. side. Yeah. The, the irony is I don't think I've ever been influenced by anyone who calls themselves an influencer. <laughs> I look at people who are influential. I've had a lot of people who are influential in my life. Mm-hmm. Kapil Gupta is certainly one of them. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine him ever calling himself an influencer. Right. In fact, he's sort of the antithesis of that. He's not trying to influence anyone, convince anyone, persuade anyone of anything. You should do this or whatever. And I think that's what's particularly problematic about influencers influencing people. Mm. It is saying you should do this. It becomes that part of society that says your life will be better. It will be improved. And it goes back to what Lewis was saying earlier. You are not enough. I've got a product for you. And so influencers are just the new form of advertisers most of the time. We're going to call out an advertiser here in a little bit. Before we get to the sucky ad segment, though, Alabama, it's a special time. What time is it? It's time for TK's Tweet of the Week. Vetoed. (laughs) (laughs) We're calling it an audible today because I found such a compelling tweet that I thought the three of us would have a different perspective on. Our friend Mm. Jeff Saris, who is the web developer at TheMinimalists.com, he tweeted this. It's actually two tweets. We'll put uh, the tweet itself in the show notes. But he says, the next time you're feeling like things aren't the way they should be, remember, everything's made up Hmm. and nothing matters. And then he follows up, though. I want to be clear. He didn't just end there. That'd be Kapil Gupta just (laughs) ending it right there. Everything's made up and nothing matters. And that really resonates with me. But he goes a little bit further. And he says, it's up to us to craft our own meaning. Mm. If that meaning relies on external approval or anything outside of our control, then we're in for a bumpy ride. And then right after that, he 
he appended the tweet with, uh, what's this guy's name? Drew, it's Drew, Drew Carey. Drew from Carey. Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yeah, and the show is Whose Line Is It Anyway? And during the intro, one of the things he says, so this little, the little gif here, this picture of Drew Carey says, where everything is made up and the points don't matter. Mm. If you remember Whose Line Is It Anyway? That was sort of the tag of the show. Yeah. They were all competing. But everything was made up and the points didn't matter. And as soon as you realize that, whatever point system you've concocted in your mind, whether it's a certain number of dollars or a certain number of followers or a certain number of influence, that doesn't actually matter unless you say to yourself that this matters. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Most of the things that matter to us don't take into account the fact that we are the meaning giver that makes it matter. And you can you can uncreate that or you can create that. It's it, it's sort of like uh, getting on a roller coaster ride and getting sick of the ride and forgetting the fact that you chose to get on it, mm. right? And so just getting on the same ride over and over again and having to be reminded like, hey, you do understand this is just an amusement park. It's just a ride. You chose to get on it you can choose to get off. Mm. And that's not a suggestion that you get off. That's not a condemnation of you and how you feel. Yeah. But you can opt out anytime. Yeah. You know, so many of the narratives we construct that that bring us so much misery are narratives that we have the power to reconstruct. Yeah. I like that example. Um, yeah, because it's like maybe you enjoy the roller coaster ride. Uh, maybe you enjoy the metaphorical roast roller coaster ride in life. Um, but yeah, if you're getting off and your head hurts and you're sick, it's like, you've got to decide, uh, yeah, you got to decide whether you want to get on or not. Imagine <laughs> me and Ryan riding on that roller coaster and we're in the same, we're, we're strapped in the same seat together. We've pulled that bar down. It's real, real tight on us accidentally. <laughs> and now we're kind of trapped there. And one of us, Ryan, most likely is just getting great joy and pleasure and, really finding a particular kind of meaning mm -hmm. that is joyous, this experiential joy from the roller coaster. And I could be seated right next to him yep. and have a completely different meaning. I'm blue in the face. I'm starting to turn green. I'm going to puke if this thing doesn't stop. I can't take another loop, another hill, mm. another upside down. Get me off this thing. Ryan's meaning is this is awesome. I'm having a blast. And imagine if you were like jealous of me having a blast and you just kept trying to ride the roller coaster. I want to yeah. have fun like Ryan. And that's, well, I don't know. That sums up social media a lot too because you look at other people's posts and you're like, oh, I wish I was doing that. But yeah, you got to be careful. The, the nothing matters statement for me is a very powerful, empowering statement because it does, you know, help me sometimes when I start to fester on something, make a big deal about something. It's like, I have to remind myself, like, dude, it doesn't matter. Like, you've got a great woman in your life. You've got great friends in your life. Like, whatever else it is you're worrying about, like, it, it doesn't matter. And even those people in a long enough timeline don't matter either. Yeah. The, uh, the appreciation of subjective value is kind of a lost art. We feel like in order for something to matter, it's got to matter to everyone in the same way, to the same extent. Mm. I wrote something on social media recently about creativity, and it was a rather simple observation. But I made the statement because I had just finished giving a talk to some high school students about the topic, and, and they really enjoyed it. And someone said, no one needs to know this. This is obvious. 
And I says, well, it's obvious to you. First of all, you're 40, man. And you're really <laughs> smart, dude. So yeah, it's obvious to you. But is this really useless to everyone in the universe now? Because it's obvious to you. I just talked to 200 kids yesterday and they found it to be very liberating. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. But we're, we're accustomed to being so offended by things that are not useless to us because our subjective values don't matter unless we universalize them. So if something doesn't matter to me, it can't matter to anyone. Mm. And if something is important to me, I need to beat you down in an argument to make you see its, its legitimacy too. But how about some things can be important to you? They can be important to you, completely meaningless to me and vice versa. And we can have a wonderful world that way. Yeah. Let's move on to the obsolete object of the week. You can send us your obsolete objects, your amass it or trash it. Also, your impulse purchases podcast at theminimalists.com. Send us a photo usually, but today we've got something a little bit different. We've got a video for you. Professor Sean, let's play this video. Let's talk about de-influencing and the cup trend. I'm obsessed with the evolution of reusable water bottles in popular culture because like every six months, there's a new hot water bottle. Have you ever noticed this? Like right now, it's the Stanley Cup. Like you have definitely seen influencers slurping out of this thing in their car, in their kitchen, right? This is the cup of the moment. But four seconds ago, it was the hydro flask. Like you had to have the hydro flask. And then also remember (laughs) when people were obsessed with the Yeti Rambler? Mm -hmm. I find this conversation on cups and water bottles fascinating because ostensibly we should be buying one of these things and then using it for like the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. They market themselves as reusable, as good for the environment. They've globbed on to the sustainability conversation. But fundamentally, by having a hot new cup every six months, we are still buying and consuming and pushing other people to buy. And we're using cups as a status symbol. The problem still exists. We're still buying too much stuff. So the problem is, yes, we are buying too much stuff. Why are we doing it? A is to be fashionable. Look at me. B, it's to fit in. I need the same water bottle as the other people in my peer group. That way I fit in. So I am simultaneously unique and I fit in because Mm. I have that need to be unique and I have the, the need for connection as well. And how are we doing this? We're doing it through our consumer products through our consumer purchases. And we're actually doing it in a way that is harmful, but it apes the form of being responsible and sustainable. But if we're buying a new water bottle every six months, these things aren't supposed to be disposable, but we're treating them as though they are disposable. Because buying a new water bottle every month, three months, six months, is probably way worse for the environment than actually just getting the to-go the, the to cup from whatever establishment you are frequenting. Now, the opposite is bringing your own mug and doing it repeatedly in a way that you're not trying to fit in with other people. It's not, look at me, look how unique I am. Mm -hmm. But this is the one that works well for me. This is functional for me. And therefore, I am going to use it regardless of how it makes me look in the presence of other people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The so the obsolete object is our cups. Hmm. And you actually have inspired me to get rid of a couple uh, drink cups when I get home. Because I have uh, the one that, the Nalgy, is that what it's called? Am I, I saying think, that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so you you were getting rid of one. You were donating one. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I need a cup. And then come to find out, like anything in plastic, you're going to get some microplastics in there. It doesn't matter what kind of plastic it is. So then I got a metal one. But I still have, like hold on to that Nalgy, like just in case. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so thanks for that. <laughs> one of the things this made me think about is how there is always a market for performative compassion. Mm. performative virtue. 
Because when you think about all of the big systemic problems in the world, those problems are incredibly difficult and complex and they have a whole lot of variables and they can very easily make us feel powerless. Like, what do you do about the problem of global poverty? What do you do about the climate? What do you do about the environment? These mm-hmm. are incredibly difficult problems that humble us because none of us know enough, right? And none of us can do what feels like enough. And so that creates a market. Buy this button. Purchase this sign or this flag or this T-shirt or this bottle, and you can signal to the rest of the world that you indeed care mm-hmm. about the environment, that you indeed care about those people over there that you don't know how to help. And this makes us great candidates for exploitation because we don't really know what that where that money is going and what it's being used for. And in our consumption of these goods for the sake of notifying the world that we're one of the good guys, we end up actually doing harm to the very conditions and the very people that we set out to help. This is why it's so important to focus on results rather than rhetoric. And this is why it's so important that even when we're having conversations about big things that need to change, we focus on what is within our locus of control, not as a way of ignoring big problems, but as a starting point for doing something about those problems in a way that holds us accountable to something other than I have the right emotions. I purchased the right products. Give me that cheap integrity. Give me that inexpensive virtue. But virtue is hard. Yeah. It's hard. It requires humility and accountability and discipline and patience. You can't get it overnight by buying a product. You can't money your way into integrity. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like virtue signaling doesn't equal being virtuous. That's right. Yeah. In fact, it's often the opposite, yeah. right? I'm reminded of one of my favorite essays by David Foster Wallace. It's called The View from Mrs. Thompson's. And it's about 9-11. And there's a line in there where he talks about he's going around town and everyone has instantly overnight has American flags in their front yard on September 12th. It's on their house. There's some people have like a, a row of flags in their front yard. Mm. He says you end up making a statement by not having a flag more than you do by having a flag. And I think the same thing is true mm. with many of these disposable cups. We're doing something that appears to be virtuous, but why am I actually doing this? Is it to appear to be virtuous? Mm. Or am I doing it because I feel that it is the most appropriate thing for me to do? Yeah. Hey, this may be a little bit more polemic, but (laughs) I think it's an interesting thought nevertheless. So um, I remember driving from Charleston to Atlanta during the, the height of the riots um, the Black Lives Matter, mm. you know, all, all, the, all that was going on. And I remember riding through this really wealthy neighborhood with these really big houses. You got to have some money for these houses, man. Mm. And I saw more Black Lives Matter signs on those houses than any other neighborhood. And I wondered to myself, I wondered, I, I asked a question rather than made an assumption or drew a conclusion. Mm. But I wondered to myself, I wonder how many of these signs, if any, our insurance policies, a way of saying, hey, please don't rob this house because, Mm. you know, please don't, you know, break any windows over here because we hear about the riots and we're scared that this place is going to get attacked. So we want you to know we're on your side. Now, if anyone says, well, how dare you assume? I'm not assuming anything. In fact, I'm not assuming that the people who wore those signs, who put up those signs are bad people. But you know what else I'm not assuming? I'm not assuming they're virtuous people either. I'm going to say, I don't know. All I see is a sign and a sign doesn't tell me how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you treat other human beings. It just tells me something that you decided to 
put up on your window. I don't know what it means. It yeah. takes less time to do that than put up Christmas lights. So I don't really know what it means. Yeah. I love that mm. this video talks about de-influencing. We've been talking about de-influencing. And this woman is saying, look, I'm going to de-influence the entire cup consumerism world, the disposable cup consumerism. Mm. Let's move on to our sucky ads segment. We've got a little tweet here that I saved and wanted someone to, well, TK, you can read this because he tweeted you directly. This is from Jay Youngward. And then I have, I want to pontificate on it a bit. Being called out by Jay Youngward <laughs> at TK Coleman. Woo! Oh, my heart skip a beat, man. <laughs> Advertising needs us infantile. Not stupid, but impressionable. Because only impressionable people can be made to want what they don't actually need. Mm. Expand on that. So... Obviously, and he tagged me and Ryan in the tweet as well, at JFM, at Ryan Nicodemus, Mm. at TK underscore Coleman. Make sure you have that underscore there. Otherwise, you'll get my favorite future lyric uh, in the Twitter bio. (laughs) (laughs) There's a different TK Coleman. Okay. okay. You'll have to find it. Uh, Yeah, now I'm going to go to a Twitter search And and the best part is that there are people who have uh, tagged him when they've quoted me before. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, so... These people are still following that TK Coleman. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> they're, like, they they're like, well, I guess I'll take the good with the bad. Oh, well, the that's very, funny, man. The- that's funny. <laughs> the very first time I reached out to TK to have him on the podcast, yeah. I heard him on Patterson in Pursuit, and I was like, oh, what a great conversation. Let me find him on social media. I just go <laughs> at TK Coleman. I'm like, oh no, like <laughs> he's. He's the completely different guy on social media. What is oh, up wow. with this? And I look oh, at the picture, wow. I'm like, wait a minute. This isn't the TK Coleman that I just heard. But the thing is, I didn't know what TK looked like. Oh, okay. I love he said, oh, man, he's, I can't have him on my show. <laughs> <laughs> the future lyric is from uh, the Mask Off song. The, the mm. lyric is, uh, chase a check, never chase a bitch. Oh my, but that does sound like RTK Coleman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. It's kind of Min- like minimal maximum. That should be my tweet of the right, week. Exactly. Yeah. Week. Dude, so um, it's kind of like you, you have a JFM um, that you probably get confused a lot yeah, with. There's a gamer named Jack Frost Miner, mm. and for some reason they just ta- they call him JFM all the time. And I'm the only other JFM that I know of. Yeah. I, in fact, I was the only JFM I knew of until. I kept getting tagged over and over and over and over on Twitter. I still get tagged pretty regularly yeah. about some gaming thing that's going on. <laughs> that's anyway, I want to return back yeah. to this tweet here. Yeah, so infantile, this means to be like in, in an infant-like state. Is yeah, they, they need yeah. to keep you like an infant. Yes. Yeah. Mm. They infantilize you, right? Mm. And so advertisers infantilize you. And I've noticed this in when I watch the Super Bowl ads... They treat us like we're all five years old, but it makes sense. You have to advertise to the lowest common denominator, especially at something like that that has tens of millions of eyeballs on it. Mm -hmm. You can't do something that's erudite or nuanced or advanced or even that artistic, right? Ryan and I, when we walked out of the Emmys, it was during the segment that was the award for the best advertisement. (laughs) And we just sort of looked over at each other and like gave each other the nod. Both stood up and made a beeline for the door. Yeah. We knew that this was the moment. This is not for us. Mm -hmm. And advertisers, 
infantilize people. Now, I'm not against all advertisements. This is not a moral stance. The same way that like, if Ryan were to puke on my shoe, I wouldn't be like, hey man, that's an immoral thing you just did. I would say, no, that's pretty gross. Yeah. But that would be a good commercial though. <laughs> That'd be a great ad. Yeah. Write, write this down, <laughs> nobody. <laughs> and, and so I look at some advertisements like uh, Idris Elba. I see him doing bookings.com, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's beneath Idris because he's one of the best act- actors in the history of the world. And he does a fine job. I don't have a problem with bookings.com. It's mm-hmm. fine, right? When I see uh, someone else uh, doing a commercial for... I see LeBron James doing a commercial for the new electric Humvee. Mm. And I see that and I'm like, I don't have a problem with the electric Humvee. Like mm-hmm. I couldn't afford one, but that's not a problem. I, I can, there's a lot of things I can't afford. Mm-hmm. But I do look at him and I said, why? Why would you? You are literally one of the greatest athletes of all time, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. Mm-hmm. And you're there in a very stilted manner talking about this Hummer and you're locking crabs into the back seat, and it just seems so beneath him. Yeah. Now, if you see a regular actor who is just doing commercial work in the Humvee, you totally get it. Sure. You understand they're essentially just a model for that. But why is LeBron James doing that? Mm. So today, mm. I actually want to call someone out for a sucky advertisement. Oh, let's do it. Uh-oh. I'm calling out Ben Affleck. For oh. a sucky advertisement. I was hoping you would say, I'm calling out LeBron James. <laughs> <laughs> LeBron James. I, I wouldn't even agree with you, but I would have to be silent because I, I would just want you to criticize LeBron and enjoy hearing you criticize him. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, sorry. anyway. For, I, to, for today's sucky ad, let's take a look at this video. I want to call out Ben Affleck. Welcome to Dunkin' and Special. Dunkin' Run, medium or large coffee, get a donut for an incremental dollar. Well, well, like, how can it be this inexpensive and well, good? Pretty no sugar. I'm just gonna have to just give you 10 munchkins. You look a little lost. One second, I'm trying to find the bagels. Do I look familiar? Oh. Should I be in it or do you want I just want this you. self-portrait? What are you doing here? Ask me if I'm Is like, this I'm... what you do when you say you're going to work all day? I, I gotta go, guys. Grab me a glaze. So I don't have a problem. <laughs> At least it was funny. <laughs> no, that's the problem. The problem is mm. this is a good commercial. Mm. It is an effective commercial. But mm. what are they doing here? It is a good commercial that is selling diabetes. It's selling obesity. Mm. And it is selling disease. Mm. And so I wouldn't have a problem with Ben Affleck doing a Toyota commercial or a Lexus commercial or a vacuum commercial. Things that are useful to people. Mm. Dunkin' Donuts, however, is delicious. But it's delicious because... They make the foods hyper palatable and they make the foods addictive. And because the foods are addictive and then we couple it with someone we admire, one of the best actors and directors of our generation, it makes it not just hyper palatable to your palate, Mm -hmm. but hyper palatable to your psyche. And so when we see these celebrities participating in advertisements that are actively harmful to the populace that keep us unhealthy, diseased, overweight, and they they make our lives miserable. And so 
This is increasing the misery of humanity. Why do you do something like that when A, you don't need to do it, but B, it also makes you look like you aren't the person who you are. It makes you look like you aren't one of the best actors and directors and writers of a generation. This is beneath you, Ben. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. Go ahead, TK. You know what I'm going to (laughs) do? You know, I'm going to be Angel's advocate for a second. <laughs> no, well, good luck to... finding an Angel in this one. He's going <laughs> to no, bring up Michael Jordan and McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm going to. Because he's triggering me because I'm thinking about the Jordan commercial yeah. and I'm being defensive. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm genuinely curious. It's probably going to sound like I'm trying to needle you, but I really want to know your answer to this. Um, I know you say you don't take a moral stance on it. That sounds to me like a moral stance. I'm not accusing you of being a hypocrite. Sure. I, I want you to reconcile that for me because it sounds like there, there's a, and there's nothing wrong with a moral stand, stance in my opinion, but it sounds like there's some should involved in there. That, like there's a hierarchy of value, mm-hmm. like he's doing something that's beneath him, that, that, that they're basically selling poison or selling mm-hmm. diabetes. They're doing something unhealthy. And then on top of that, they're taking advantage of people in this way. It feels like a moral stance. Mm-hmm. If it's not, what is it? Why am I saying it like that? I'm grossed out. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. I'm truly grossed out. When I see someone who's such a great actor, who's a great director, writer, just a brilliant artist, doing something like this, I see it and I'm like, why? Mm. Why would you do it? Not because I think it's immoral to do this. I don't think it's immoral. I think it's gross. I think doing advertisements like this, it's beneath us. It's certainly beneath a savant like Ben Affleck. I mean, this guy is a Mozart of Mm. acting. And yet, that's what makes this even more pernicious because it's not just a random stand-in selling us sugar-coated, delicious diabetes. It's someone that people look up to. And I'm just grossed out by it, man. For me, it makes me think of uh, (laughs) when the Tiger Woods saga really unfolded. And how he was, he was a serial cheater and things like, like, I really looked, looked up to Tiger Woods. And then I saw how he, you know, treated his wife and family and yeah, I was grossed out. And it's like, I can still appreciate his golf game, but I, I do see what you're saying, man. Like, it sounds like you really look up to Ben Affleck and then he does something like this and you're like, why? You're one of my role models. Like, why would you do this? Yeah. Yeah. I don't look up to him as a human being. I look up to him as an artist mm. and when, and of course I can decouple the artist from the art that they do. But to me, this is just putting a turd in the soup. And like, if you have one of the best chefs, you know, if you have Chef Ramsay, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Gordon Ramsay. And then he makes this delicious stew for you. And then he just comes over and puts one turd in it. It ruins the whole stew. I don't know, man. You haven't tried my turd stew. (laughs) (laughs) And so here's a question for you guys. My wife and I were talking about this the other day. Um, like franchise ownership. And, and, and I know you guys, if you were interested in owning a bunch of franchises, you would already do that. But mm-hmm. let's assume that you were. Would you experience a conflict with something like 
owning a, a Dunkin' franchise or a McDonald's franchise that yeah. sells something that you well, think is unhealthy? I'll, I'll take my, my own personal experience yeah. here. So Ryan and I own a coffee house <laughs> called Bandit Coffee in St. Mm-hmm. Petersburg, Florida. Mm-hmm. And you'll never see me post anything. We only own 40% of the coffee house, but you'll never see me post anything that I don't 100% believe believe in. And so like if they have some sort of delicious looking donut for the day because they have some vendor who came in, I don't like that. Mm-hmm. And if it were 100% my my shop, there's no way that I would tolerate that or allow that. Interesting. And I'm still grossed out. By, in fact, I'm grossed out by it even more because I have something to do with this shop. And so it makes me want to uncouple myself from that even because it's not a moral stance. But for me, it's beneath me to recommend something mm. that I don't mm. 100% believe in. We could do a whole episode sometime. I, we're getting a whole bunch of these whole episodes in <laughs> queue, but on like moral and aesthetic value, like hierarchy of value, like um, maybe the difference between saying I'm disgusted by X versus I think X is objectively morally, morally wrong mm. or objectively immoral. And, and, and just how our value system um, in, uh, affects our, our lives and so forth. You know, like the tiger thing, for me, that's a moral issue. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's but, different. Right? Yeah, I see what you're saying. And I think well, the tiger thing is both moral and not moral, like because he was also a whore for Buick and all these other places, right? Mm. And the question becomes like, why? Mm. I, I, and it's a genuine question I have. Like, why? I understand if... Some random guy, you know, if Jeff Woods is in the Buick commercial, it's so he can earn a living. And I don't begrudge anyone for that. And by the way, I defend Ben Affleck's right to be in this gross commercial. Right. I'm not saying he shouldn't be in it. In fact, if someone were to jump up and say it should be illegal for actors to be in commercials, I would say no. I'm grossed out by these commercials, but absolutely not. I don't want to put a moratorium on that. Jordan, you had uh, something to say real quick. Yeah, uh, I just I'd be remiss if I didn't add the 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 backstory on this uh, about Ben Affleck and his involvement with Dunkin' Donuts from the beginning of his career and the fact that he's from Boston and Dunkin' is like a big deal in Boston. Yeah, he's always he actually loves the brand and always has it. It's like ridiculous how he he's like a, a champion for them with even without being a sponsor. And then, like I was actually just seeing a post yesterday of like. 15 pictures in a row of him. He literally like lives Dunkin' Donuts. Mm. <laughs> and his first role in his first movie was Goodwill Hunting. Yes. And his first scene, he delivered a cup of Dunkin' Donuts to to Will. So <laughs> oh, that's great. It, there's a little bit of like, it's not totally like a random brand deal. I would no, say there's a not. little bit of a little, like, I don't know if that, that doesn't help his situation yeah. in this regard, but I just, I, I had to include that. As a nice I, I think that tidbit. it makes it worse. And I'll, I'll, I'll say why really quickly. Because people associate Dunkin' Donuts with Greater Boston, specifically New England generally, right? Mm-hmm. And then they associate him with Boston, especially Goodwill Hunting. And so what you're doing is you're associating a piece of art mm. with a consumer brand. Imagine if, and by the way, I don't think we're that far off from this. Mm. One of my favorite books is Infinite Jest. And each chapter title is a year. And they've replaced the years with corporate sponsors. And so it's no longer 2017. It is the year of the Depend Adult Undergarment. Wait, as part of the writing? 
as like as yes, part of the yeah, as part of the world that it's in. So oh, interesting. We're, we're no longer in 2017 or 2023 uh, now. We are in the year of the depend adult undergarment. I gotta read mm. that. Yes, but you know, it, it's. I'm sorry. Were you finished? Go. What, what's interesting is like. Um, first off, I love donuts. Like I don't eat donuts all the time. Um, I can't even tell you the last time I had a donut, but there's nothing wrong with the donut. There's nothing wrong with Dunkin' Donuts. For me, um, the the point that I'm gathering from you, Josh, is like he is basically encouraging people to eat more donuts, Mm -hmm. but that's not, I don't feel like that's on Ben. That's on our own individual choice. I mean, the freedom that we have, we could eat Twinkies for every single meal if we wanted to. That's our choice. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of torn on it. I do see the grossness of it that you're talking about, but yeah, it's it's just interesting because I don't blame Ben for diabetes. Yeah, this is interesting to me because the easy conversation for me to have, and I know it's not an easy conversation for everyone, but the easy the easy direction for me to take the conversation is, is a legal one where I defend the right of people like Ben Affleck to make commercials for whoever he wants to make it for and say, you know, I don't think anybody has the right to shut that down, right? To kind of make that sort of argument. But, you know, th- there, there is a moral issue too, right? Like just because something is legal or, or maybe shouldn't be made illegal doesn't mean that, um, that it's good. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's morally good or that it has a positive benefit on society. And there's more to thinking about human responsibility. There's more to thinking about making the world better than just in terms of what ought to be legal versus illegal. Thousands yeah. of legal things we can do that harm people. Yeah. Um, and, and we should look at those things. So it's interesting to me uh, for those reasons, but I'm more inclined in your direction. I enjoy a good cup of Dunkin' coffee. Um, and, you know, I enjoy a good donut, <laughs> you know. Um, I yeah. don't know when last time I ate at Dunkin' specifically. Uh, but... Yeah, for, for me, I, I like the story that Jordan shared. I think it's kind of a cool, <laughs> fun thing. But but I would be interested in having more conversation too about um, how much of, how much of these advertisements actually affect our our behavior. Yeah. And I'm not saying it like I don't think they do. But but I, I know you said to me one time that kind of like in the corporate world, it's like they pour a certain amount of money in there, and they don't really know how how much oh, right. I, 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 there's a way you said it that yeah was basically like uh back in the corp or corporate days like marketing knew that 50 percent of their marketing worked but they couldn't yeah. tell you which 50 percent it was yeah yeah, yeah. so and that's interesting in. like how many people are because they're watching these commercials they're going out and eating more donuts than they yeah. would have eaten uh if if it was just a, a place that's there that, that's that's interesting this is just me. me and tk projecting our uh guilt and judgment that we're feeling for eating donuts you want to go grab a donut after yeah. this man let's do for it sure. <laughs> <laughs> well i failed you all i'm sorry <laughs> no man this was fun i, I like this <laughs> I, I always hate because I, I feel like this more than any other segment comes up for me as a, as a space where I want to get to know you guys a little more and how you think about these things because mm. I, I do come at it from a very different vantage point. And I'm super curious about your philosophies on these things. And I feel like this is one of the shorter segments. And every single time we get to these, Mm -hmm. I'm just filled with questions. And I I feel like I I would just love a a whole show with you guys on advertising. I would love to maybe just interview y'all. We don't even have to debate. but Just the people that I look up to. I mean, I just get disappointed by the. You would never see Tom York Mm, in right. a Dunkin' Donuts commercial, right? Right. Um, and you never see him make music. You wouldn't even hear one of his songs in a Dunkin' Donuts commercial. Yeah. Now, 
they'd be happy to pay him millions of dollars to put karma police in there or whatever, but he would never do it. And I asked that same question, why? The same reason I asked, why is Ben Affleck in this? I asked myself, why wouldn't Tom York do this? Mm. Why wouldn't you see Daniel Day-Lewis in a Dunkin' Donuts commercial? Right. Mm. Mm. That's an interesting why. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Roger Waters, Pink Floyd, um, yeah, he has told many stories of how advertisers try to get hit their music and in, in their uh, to get Pink Floyd's music in their advertisements. And um, he has the same stance that you're talking about right now. He's like, no, I refuse to like be part of this system. Yeah, this marketing. And it doesn't mean he's against money. He, right. He'd be happy if they just wanted to come and hand him money, but not use his songs. Yeah, that's fine. If an advertiser wants to come give us money, but not have us advertise for them, I'm happy to take that money. Sure. But otherwise, you can hold on to it. Mm. You made me think of uh, uh, Denzel Washington uh, talked about how in his, early in his career, he was offered this role and the role was not really consistent with the way he wanted to be seen, but it would get his foot in the door and it would definitely give him a lot more exposure than he had. And he called Sidney Poitier and Sidney Poitier told him, those first few roles that you say yes to, they're going to shape the way people see you for the rest of your career. And it might be worth saying no to some things early on that might give you more exposure for the sake of preserving your integrity and having some control over your brand. And so he said that he turned that role down um, and he chose to take roles that reflected how he wanted to represent himself in the world, how he wanted to represent the image of a black man, which is why you don't see Denzel do training day until much later on in his career. But prior to that, he's a lawyer in Philadelphia, right? He's uh, in Crimson Tide. He's he's an attorney. He's a doctor. He's all of these upstanding roles. And then he does something like training day where he plays this this evil character, um, but he can kind of get away with it. And there, there is something to be said about thinking very critically and very carefully about what do I represent? Yeah. Uh, because I, I can always do something for the money, but but am I am I upholding the values that I stand for in this world when I take that check? That's an important thing to consider. You're showing the difference here between Denzel and Ben, by the way, because Denzel also wouldn't be in that commercial for Dunkin' Donuts. And what's important to, to look at here is there are plenty of commercials that Ben Affleck would refuse to be in. Mm-hmm. He agrees to be in a Dunkin' Donuts commercial because it's commonly acceptable. But he wouldn't be in a Fleshlight commercial. Mm. But why? Fleshlight's way less harmful than Dunkin' Donuts. It's not even close. Well, I think, but I do agree with Jordan's story, though. I think there's a personal connection. I don't know if he's going to do 76 gas station commercials. No, that's not what I'm talking about, though. What I'm saying is if there was a personal connection, even to Fleshlight for some reason... He wouldn't do it because it's not acceptable by society to do something like that. And what I'm saying is, well, what's what's the difference? Yeah. In fact, there is a difference. It's that Dunkin' Donuts causes far more disease, dis-ease, and dysfunction, and obesity, and unhealth in our society than a flashlight yeah. does. Yeah. And so I think that's important to keep in mind. He's still willing to say no somewhere. He draws the line somewhere. And the interesting question, I don't have an answer to. That's why I'm asking this why, why, why. Why would Denzel not do it? And why would Ben Affleck do it? Why would one person say no to that? What does it take to be a Denzel? 
And then what do you give up by being Ben Affleck? Um, I, I want to ask Ben Affleck himself. So Ben Affleck, I would <laughs> love to have you on this show. And I'd love to talk with you about the Duncan commercials, your history in Boston, and why you chose to do this commercial and what would be your response to the expressed sentiments of JFM. Mm. TK at The Minimalist, email me, my brother. I love to talk to you. Love your work. <laughs> Let's check in with the Patreon live stream. Alabama, do we have any questions from our beloved patrons? We sure do. Here's a question from Sue. Can you expand more on healing your inner child? What do we really need to reinforce for that five-year-old self? And how do we show compassion for that kid? I've been thinking mm. about this recently, Ryan. Mm. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, but... I find that when I have problems in a current relationship, it often has to do with some residue from my childhood. Often, you know, Freud would say it's always about your mother. Yeah. Especially as a man, it often ties back to the mother and the complex that we develop around that. And so healing is not something you do, mm. right? Mm. When Ryan was skiing down that hill and got into the fight with the tree. The tree won. Got my ass kicked. And yet, what happened? He broke five vertebrae. Mm. Ryan's so tough, though, he walked into the emergency room with a broken back, five broken vertebrae. I got so lucky, dude. I got so lucky. And, of course, the first thing, because Ryan's type A, the first thing he asked them once they, you know, do the x-rays and all this other stuff, what do I do to heal this? And they're like, no, you don't do anything. It's actually the lack of doing that is going to allow you to heal. Yeah. But it requires that understanding, that level of understanding. So healing the inner child or the trauma from childhood or trauma from any time in life has nothing to do with something you do. There's not a three-step plan. You do these three things, a 20 jumping jacks, 40 push-ups, mm-hmm. and you pat your belly and rub your head at the same time, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, your inner child will be healed. It's about understanding where the wound comes from. Yeah, Seeing That's it right. for what it is, is actually what allows it to heal. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is that um, adult problems are simply youth problems left unresolved. But what happens in adulthood is our toys get more expensive. Our distractions get more sophisticated. The language that we can use to obscure our problems and BS ourselves and BS others becomes more eloquent. But at the end of the day, every problem that we have now is at its core level a manifestation of some decision or some wound that happened a long time ago. And healing that inner child isn't so much about conducting some sort of mystical activity where you call up some ghost-like entity that is the inner child and say, I forgive you, but it's recognizing that I'm living on autopilot in some area of my life because I am allowing myself to be the victim of a decision I made a long time ago. And it's time to let that go. I was looking at some areas of my life where I was experiencing some struggles, not getting the results I wanted. And I realized, oh man, back in the day, there was a particular way of being that was necessary for me to protect myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm still on autopilot with that because it worked for me for so long, but I don't even need to protect myself in that way anymore. I'm not even dealing with those obstacles and those challenges anymore, but here it is. This pattern of thinking, this pattern of behavior 
that has made itself a part of my identity because when I was seven, I said, I'm never going to let that happen to me again. Mm. And it's going back and saying, hey, I got it from here, TK. Mm. Yeah. I got it, man. Amen, dude. Yeah. 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 I mean, when Lewis House was talking about the inner child stuff, I mean, I was kind of getting choked up because I just recently within the last like five years kind of learned how to, how to start, um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I guess I would call it healing, but maybe it's accepting or, uh, yeah, maybe acceptance is, is a better word for it. But that Lewis, leads to the healing though, right? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Lewis did a great job of talking about yeah. how to kind of build that relationship with your inner child. The, the, maybe one thing I would add to it is that w- whenever you're feeling a certain emotion, so I'll just give an example um, of, of myself. I start to feel uh, an- an- anxious, which is also kind of synonymous with scared. And when I feel that, um, what I've learned is like, oh, that really roots back to these things that happened when I was a kid. And exactly what you were saying, TK, it's like when you're a kid, you're like, oh, I'm never going to like let this happen. And so for me, it was like, oh, I'm never going to not see this coming. Like I'm going to, I'm going to make myself anxious and worry because at least I'll see it coming. Yeah. And, um, yeah, what what I do in those situations is I do imagine like a five-year-old little mm. scared, dorky, ugly Ryan. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, man, um, you, you don't have to be scared. Like, I know life is really tough for you right now. And, and I know that you don't know how it's going to pan out, but I promise you it's going to work out well. And uh, I got your back. And it it really does help that. Again, I don't know if I would call it healing or not, but it helps me to process those emotions and helps me to move forward. Because, I mean, trauma is, it's its an onion. It's like, it's all these different layers. And you, you can't just get to the core of it. You kind of got to like, I don't know, go to each little trauma and kind of play out um, how, like what I imagine like, okay, um, again, like what would I tell, what did Ryan at five years old really need to hear? Ryan at 16 years old, when I had traumas like that, like what did I really need to hear? And that is... Um, yeah, that's how I would heal my inner child. All the great Zen teachers talk about fear is rooted in thinking the pain of the consequence is going to be unbearable. And as soon as you realize that everything that you think is going to be unbearable is indeed bearable, mm-hmm. you can bear that pain. It's all bearable. And this happened in my own life. Ryan, I remember when I first developed my autoimmune disease, I mm. had all of these ulcers in my small bowel, a hundred plus ulcers. Now, one ulcer is really bad. Even if you had an ulcer on your arm, it's painful, right? Now, imagine spraying acid into an ulcer on your arm, how painful that would be. Well, your stomach acid, the pH is somewhere around 1.5 to 2.4, somewhere around there. It's very acidic. Mm. And I had a hundred of these ulcers in my stomach for over a year. Every day I would wake up with 10 out of 10 panic level, seemingly unbearable pain. Mm. How am I going to get through this next second, this Mm. next minute, this next five minutes? It seems unbearable. As soon as I realized I was able to bear even that, it's all bearable. Mm. everything that seems unbearable is bearable. And as soon as you see that, the fear, it just dissipates. Yeah. 
We're going to check back in with the live stream again here in a moment. We're going to keep it rolling, though. A little segment we do called Minimalist Home Tour. This is a little look into my garage, my guest house. This is where I live. I'm the guest in my guest house the vast, vast, vast majority of the time. Alabama's got the iPad here. She'll show you. I called this one the work of a Spartan <laughs> because this is, this is my workspace. And you can see it's rather monochrome. It's fairly Spartan. It's not Spartanist because I didn't get rid of everything. I have just the things I need here. I have a chair. I have a little trolley file cabinet thing that actually doubles as a seat as well. So if there's a second person there, they can sit on the trolley. I have a sit-to-stand desk and a couple sound panels so I can make phone calls while I'm there as well. And that is it. Now, the sound panels actually function as art for me. Mm. Uh, I... I like the way the sound panels look in this room. I like the, just the way they look. They are art without art on them. It's almost like a canvas in a way. And this is my preference. When I live alone, it tends to be relatively Spartan. Mm. The difference between Spartan and Spartanist is Spartan is brutal, brutalist, stripped down, aggressively minimal, aggressively simple. However, it's not Spartanist. Spartanist means I can't hold on to anything. Mm. No, in fact, I get a ton of value from these few things that are in this room. Immense value. And I use them regularly. I use them every day. However, I'm considering getting rid of this desk eventually and maybe putting a small dining room table there. Because mm. if more people come over and use the guest house as an actual guest house, uh, which is, this is where I live when we don't have company over, basically. <laughs> uh, when Bex and I are separated by a fence, it's like the Hatfields and the McCoys, but we, <laughs> but we have sex. <laughs> <laughs> I assume some Hatfields were effing some of the McCoys, though, right? Yeah, you know there was some like, yeah, Romeo and Juliet. Yes. The yeah. Mon- Montague versus the Capulet. It yeah. was like Cletus versus Mary Jane. Right. Um, oh, that's funny. Yeah, so this is, uh, by the way, we sent this to you. If you're watching the video version of the podcast, uh, you can see it here. If you're just listening to the audio version, this is really simple. I have a garage. It's about 250 square feet total, so pretty small, with a high ceiling, so it feels bigger than what it is. And the only thing that's in there is what you see in this picture on the other side of the room, there's a bed and a very small end table next to the bed. And that's literally it. It's monochrome. There's a concrete floor, a couple sound panels, a black desk that sits and stands, a little trolley file cabinet, and there's a kitchen in the room as well, which I will use to make coffee mostly. (laughs) And hamburger. And that's about it. Dude, looking at this picture, like it makes me feel calm. It's good. And the weird thing about that is like, I didn't stage this either. I was walking through the, and I was like, I need a home tour photo. Mm. We're out right now. Yeah. And so I'm just going to do this real quick. I'll show you the rest of the space in a future week. However, we want to encourage our patrons. You can email us photos of your home, podcast at minimalists.com. We love to feature some everyday minimalists on the podcast. Show us your simple space. What's the simple space in your home? Something you've aspired to attain, and now you have attained that simple space, and it feels calm to you. Now, yes. it doesn't mean it has to look like this. It doesn't have to be 
Spartan or aggressively simple or brutalist. It can be what minimalism looks like for you. It could be full of pops of color and plants and all of these other things, or it could be an empty room. Yeah. What a great idea. Yeah. Podcast at theminimalists.com. Send your photos there. Malabama will go through and pick some of her favorites. We'll check back in with the Patreon live stream in a moment. But first, actually, let's do that right now. Patreon live stream. Another question for us, Malabama. Great. We've got a question here from Yaman. It's often repeated on the show that to love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. However, a wise man by the name of Jay Cole says in one of his verses, love is wanting more for someone than they want for themselves. Is that antithetical to your definition? Well, I don't have a definition. I I just have an understanding of love that is different from Jay Cole's. I don't like to get bogged down in definitions. It sounds to me like what he's describing is not love uh, because that is wanting to change someone. Yeah. And uh, it's a great line, and it sounds really good, Yaman. And I think it's a very thoughtful question. We always appreciate appreciate your questions, yeah. Yaman. But uh, yeah, it just sounds to me like we we don't culturally we don't understand love, and and it permeates especially all of our popular music. Mm. Singer songwriters talk about how much I need you. I don't just want you. I need you. That's mm. not love either. But also. If I need or even I want to change you, that's not love because that means I can't even accept you Mm. for who you are. Mm. And to love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them, manipulate them, persuade them, drag them toward my point of view. And if I can do that, quite often what happens is they might even change on their own. And so, yes, I can want something different for them. But as soon as I try to change them, I've lost sight of love altogether. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it is a great line. Um, but yeah, I mean, wanting something more for someone doesn't, does not mean that you necessarily love them. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. What, what are your thoughts, TK? Well, for me, when I think about the relationship between love and change, I think of changing someone in two different senses. One is coercive change. The other is creative change. Coercive change is when I try to force you to be something other than what you are, or when I try to manipulate you into being what I want you to be. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you can feel that resistance, right? You can feel that, that, that refusal to accept who you are on the terms that you define for yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm not for coercive change. And I believe that if you love someone, you respect their freedom even if you disagree with how they choose to use that freedom. Mm. For me, creative influence is a different thing. Creative influence is when you use your power to point people back to their own power. It's when you recognize that although people need to be accepted for who they are, sometimes people fall short of their own ideals because of addictions, attachments, and other points of vulnerability, and they benefit from someone who can point them back to their own power. Mm. Hey, you can do it. And I'm going to try to creatively influence you, not by forcing you to do what I want you to do, but by listening to you tell me the life that you want to live and giving you a way of looking at things that might inspire you to take your own power seriously. Because I have some reasons to believe that you're underestimating what you can achieve in the world. And I'm going to take a moment to share those reasons with you. Mm. And if you're completely unmoved by them, that's okay. We can still be friends, but I'm going to make this effort 
to creatively influence you to embrace your own power so that you can live a life of wholeness that you desire. So I do believe in that kind of creative influence. The key to the application of that J. Cole quote for me, however, would be to not be presumptuous in the understanding you think you have about what's best for someone else. Because mm-hmm. just because you think you want more for them than they want for themselves doesn't mean you're doing that from a place of really understanding their priorities. Yeah. 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 If I were to be like, I really want TK to be a multimillionaire. Yeah. Right. But he was like, I don't, I don't want that at all. Like, right. in fact, I want to give money away or whatever. Mm-hmm. No, nope. I want what's better for you. And I know <laughs> right. better what is better for you, then you know what is better for you. Right. Yeah, And that is, to me, the essence of that J. Cole line. So we have to be careful because it sounds yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Oh, he must love me because he wants my best self. But it's his version of my best self, not me, the true me, yeah, the real me. Yeah. yeah. Let's read some more about less, y'all. I've got two articles today. We saved them from last week. And this first one is, they're, they're tied together. So this first one's from the Boulder Daily Camera. And uh, the title of it is, To Have and to Hoard. Ex- exhibition showcases funky and forgotten finds of local collector. Now, several people sent this article to us because we're the minimalists and we often talk about hoarding and how it is categorized by many medical practitioners as a mental illness. Mm -hmm. And that is not from a point of judgment. It is from a point of observation. And when I see an article like this, let me read it and then we can comment on it. And so there's a picture here, which you'll see when you pull up the article, put a link to the article in the show notes. But if you're watching the video version, I'll just hold this up. There's a gentleman who's standing amid his hoard inside a museum in Boulder. And the caption underneath the photo says, Joel sits among a portion of his vast collection on Tuesday. Andrew Novak curated the exhibit to have and to hoard at Boulder Public Library's Canyon Gallery. It features an extensive extensive collection of items, antiques, found objects, and artifacts that Joel has collected over many years. The Canyon Gallery is at 1000 Canyon Boulevard. Okay. So the article goes on to say this. A slice of his immense collection can be seen in the exhibition to have and to hoard at Boulder Public Library's Canyon Gallery through February 5th. Joel, son of the famous architect Charles Hartling, grew up in Boulder and remains loyal to the garage sales of his origin, never venturing to those outside of his hometown. Quote, it's really down to the fact that I believe in garage sales is a place to go, Hartling said. I stay in the city limits of Boulder, and I go to all of them during the garage sale season, or even out of season. In the exhibition, visitors will even see the various signs for garage sales Hartling has saved and preserved. Treasure maps to rummage sales from Mapleton Hill to Goss Grove. And it goes on to talk about his collection. And here's what I'll say. People sent this article to us. A bunch of people sent this article to us because, hey, the minimalists are going to have a huge problem with this. Yeah. I don't have a problem with it. Here's why. I think the best place to display a hoard is in an art museum. Because generally, here's what we do with our art. I'm sorry. Generally, here's what we do with our hoards. Mm. We hide the hoards in our own homes. We've created these homegrown mausoleums of excess stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we hold on to the excess stuff, not 
realizing that not only am I not getting value from it, but I'm depriving other people of getting value from these things. But by Joel putting his hoard in a museum, that hoard is, for the first time, adding value to someone's life beyond his own. Now, one might argue maybe it has never added any value to his life, the hoard itself, but the adventure of going treasure hunting on the treasure maps by seeing all the yard sale signs, I'm all for it. The experience, if you enjoy doing that, and I'm not even against you bringing a hoard into your home, but recognizing that maybe the best place for that hoard is a place where other people can enjoy those items as well. Mm-hmm. And that's what I found when we first embraced minimalism. It was about understanding by letting go of some of these things, which is fundamentally what he's done here. He's let go of it in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Letting go allows us to add value to other people's lives, real value, because now they get value from those things as opposed to me selfishly clinging and hiding my hoard. Yeah. I think where people get kind of trapped sometimes is they look at uh, Joel's hoard here and they're like, oh, that's art. I'm also going to uh, create art in my own life. But Joel is an exception. He's not the rule. And even the things that we hold on to in our hoard, like sometimes we use that exception versus rule thing. I'm going to hold on to this just in case for this one exception for this one time that I'm going to need something. And uh, it's it's an easy road to go down with with um, looking at the exceptions rather than looking at the rule. And you know what? Even for the people who do look at this and say, oh, yeah, that's art. That's what I'm going to do. I mean, that's up to you. Yeah. Right. Um, it's, you know, art is any creative expression that brings you joy. Mm-hmm. And if it adds joy without regret, then be inspired by this story and say, you know what? Instead of letting my clutter hide out in my garage, I'm going to take it out of there and I'm going to make something with it that creates value for someone else or that makes me love my home a little more. That's constructive. That's awesome. It brings you joy. Um, Here's one thing um, that I love from this. uh, This is my favorite line of what you read. From From kitschy to clever, one never knows just what gems are hiding in a cardboard box in someone's basement or under a veil of dust high in the rafters of an attic. What gems are hiding? And this goes back to a statement you guys have said many times. One person's clutter is another person's treasure. And one of the most beautiful aspects of letting go of clutter is that you not only release the things that hold you back from being the best possible version of yourself, but you also add treasure to another person's life. And that's really awesome. Yeah. You, you, you win in two ways every time. Someone else sent us a second article and I'm going to read the headline. This is from the New York Times. We'll put the entire article in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. The title of this article is, and I'm wondering if this is a coincidence or if the two are related here. Hmm. A Colorado library closed because of meth contamination. <laughs> what? In downtown Boulder, Colorado, a public library that provides the surrounding community with a space to meet and learn has been closed for two weeks. No, winter weather was not to blame. Overdue books weren't the cause, and neither was funding. It was meth. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Wow. Don't what? even read the rest of it. I just want to like make Happy. up my own story. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so the hoarding exhibit attracts a bunch of meth 
users that have taken over the library is what I'm assuming. That's mm. the connection I'm making, allegedly. I'm just imagining that Joel actually was like a Walter White character. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I don't even know where to start. What happened? <sighs> well, all I know is a library got shut down because of meth contamination. Mm-hmm. Where Does that mean the people that worked at the library were secretly doing meth in the computer lab or something? What was going on? Well, I, I'll keep reading on then. I think we're just making up our own story, but yeah, let's find <laughs> out what actually happened. The main library in Boulder, about 30 minutes northwest of Denver, was shut down on December 20th when test results from restroom exhaust vents showed methamphetamine contamination, the city said in a statement. Let me pause on that for a second. So, isn't it funny? Uh, to me, hoarding is sort of the methamphetaminic version of... Consumption. Mm. We all need consumption. None of us need a hoard. Mm-hmm. Now, you can want one. You can have one. I'm not saying you shouldn't have one, but need. A hoard is never essential. And so it is this methamphetaminic desire to consume. The This is the terminus of consumerism. Yeah. I'm incomplete. Fill me up. Make me whole. Make me enough. More, 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 more. Ryan, we both know people who have been on meth. Mm -hmm. And they start counting carpet fibers. And uh, uh, they begin to devolve into a manic state. Mm. But isn't that what consumerism does to us as well. It makes us manic and more and more and more will finally complete me. And then we're bloated with stuff or if it's meth, we're bloated with substance addiction. By the way, it's addiction all the way down here, right? Return to text. State and local governments have different standards for determining what level of meth contamination (laughs) is safe for the public. The city of Boulder said in a statement last week that, quote, the thresholds for remediation set in Colorado are some of the most conservative in the nation. The positive results from the exhaust fan test prompted further testing, which showed that the highest contamination levels were in the library's public-facing restrooms. Oh, my goodness. Surface contamination was also found in seating areas with booths and tables on the library's first floor, the city said. In two separate incidents, library staff were evaluated and cleared for potential meth exposure after feeling ill. Wow. The statement said. Yeah. Sarah Huntley, the city of Boulder's director of communication and engagement, said in an email that the contamination in portions of the library, including the public restrooms, quote, exceeded health department standards. <laughs> oh my goodness. You don't say. <laughs> Officials said they were in the process of hiring certified remediation contractors to remove contaminated furniture and to thoroughly clean the restroom. The process is expected to take several weeks. In the meantime, members of the library staff returned to work on Monday to process materials that had been returned before the shutdown and to prepare for a partial reopening on Wednesday. Full access to the building, other than the restrooms, was tentatively scheduled for next week. The library's director, David Farnan, said in the city's statement that he was confident that there was no ongoing health risk. Well, it goes on and on and on. I have two thoughts. One, apparently meth heads like to go to the library and smoke meth because that must be how it's contaminated. But two, I want to know 
when one of the employees, oh, I'm feeling bad. Who was like, we should check for meth contamination. <laughs> <laughs> That's your suspect, right? <laughs> right. I also love what sounds like the complete disinterest in speculating to any degree whatsoever on what the root cause of this was. It's like, hey, we checked out the employees, make sure that they weren't affected by the contamination, Mm -hmm. not that they weren't infecting with the contamination, (laughs) right? Like no speculation, no theories. That's fascinating though. I hope there isn't some kind of a meth endemic no, no, there is. Oh, it, there is. It, throughout it, the whole country. I mean, I mean like libraries. Like, oh. I, like, is there something about the library yes. that makes it a hot spot for that kind of activity? Sure. Mm. The libraries are homeless shelters, essentially. I mean, because we don't have the same access to uh, goods and services, by and large, a lot of li- public spaces in general become these homeless shelters. And a lot of homelessness has to do with two things, substance abuse and mental illness, right? Meth, you have to, you have to smoke it, right? It's pretty like using meth is a pretty, you can snort it, but yeah. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's pretty obvious when you're using meth, right? Like it's not something you can do super low key, right? Uh, I I don't know. I don't, I don't think you you can't, I don't think you can be on meth and be low key, but I think you could consume meth low key. Okay. So yeah. So more so than a cigarette, then it's it's more uh, it's oh, more yeah. obvious to smoke a cigarette than to do meth. It's yes. probably it's probably roughly the same, but cigarettes have a distinct smell. Meth, most people when they smell meth, they're like, "What the hell is that?" It smells like, yeah, like so what's that, that chemical smell? Yeah. So, so yeah. that's my thing, though. Like, if if I walked into a library and smoked a cigarette, maybe I can get away with it one time or something, right? I go into mm. the bathroom in the stall, but like I can't repeatedly do that without somebody being like, "Hey, no smoking is allowed." Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. I'm just wondering what but it they, is about they, the meth. People know story. what cigarettes yeah. smell like. Okay. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to pair the, yeah. this article with the other one, and the person who sent it to us actually paired the two together, yeah. is I'm wondering when we're constantly looking for more and more stimulation, the hoarding exhibit, I'm not saying that it causes meth addiction. Obviously, it doesn't. But what I am saying is the two aren't that dissimilar. Mm-hmm. Earlier today, we talked about Infinite Jest, the novel. And it takes place in two, there are sort of two main settings where the contemporary action takes place. And they're right across the street from each other. They're in Boston. There's no mention of Dunkin' Donuts in here. Um, <laughs> ben Affleck isn't in the novel, like trying to sell you stuff for millions of dollars. Um, but what, what I what I noticed in that novel is there are two institutions. One is a halfway house for drug addicts who are recovering. And across the street, is this elite tennis academy, high school tennis academy for high schoolers who are at at the highest level of performing. Mm. And what you begin to see is the novel unravels, the million words of the novel unravel rather frantically sometimes. What you notice is, oh, there isn't an appreciable difference between this kind of addiction and this kind of addiction. The success addiction the stuff addiction, the status addiction, whatever it might be, is one type of addiction. And we applaud that as a society. Mm -hmm. But then we see this other addiction, and both of them end up being terminal in their own ways. They can kill you, or at least metaphorically kill you. They certainly can be harmful to anyone. And yet one, we demonize and say, this is bad. This is awful. You shouldn't do this. Mm. We look at the other side and say, you should do this. Yeah. And the question goes back to why? What are you getting out of it? Because if you're devoted to tennis, that can be beautiful, right? 
But if you're so addicted to it, you can't let it go. And it's now carrying you forward. How is that different from the meth addiction? And that's why the hoarding and the meth contamination are in many respects the same thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I've, I've often said like, we're all addicted to something. So be careful, you know, which addictions you choose. But now it has me thinking, yeah, maybe we're all addicted. Like, you know, I'm addicted to coffee. And like, I drink coffee all the time. If I don't drink coffee, I have, you know, side effects from it. Um, yeah, it's like, it's not a, uh, it's not about everyone has an addiction, choose your addiction wisely as much as like, how much weight does that addiction have in your life? Um, yeah. Last words, TK? This is why it can't be about the number of things or the name of the thing. It has to be about your relationship to it. You know, when I yeah. say things like there's no inherently wrong amount of money to make or there's no inherently wrong number of things to have, sometimes that gets heard as like, oh, you're just saying that every billionaire is a good person. No, we know for a fact that there are many ultra wealthy people who got there by exploit exploitation. But it's about saying even at the smallest level, there are things you can do at every level of the income spectrum and at every level of possession ownership that's unhealthy. There is no safety to be, to be found in things because you have to bring the right relationship mm -hmm. to it. If you make $50 for being an assassin, that's not a lot of money, but I still have a problem with it, right? right? I still have a problem with it. So you're not off the hook just because the amount of stuff you have is a small number. It's about your relationship to it, whether the number is big or the number is small, mm. whether the substance is meth or the substance is pizza, whatever it is, you're not safe by hiding behind your things, a small number or a big number. You're only safe when you bring an element of consciousness to things mm. that says, I will use them intentionally rather than letting them use me. And that's why that's a cop-out to be like, well, I'm just doing it to feed my family, right? The assassin thing yeah. illustrates how absurd a comment or statement like that can be. We can justify anything if we have the righteous moral grounding to do these, well, immoral or inappropriate things in our life. Mm. And now, of course, most of the things we're talking about here have nothing to do with morality. Your stuff is not inherently immoral or moral. It is amoral. And the question then becomes, what am I doing with the resources I have? And by the way, what is it doing to me? Mm. And that's probably even the more important question here. What is my stuff doing to me? What is my excess furniture, my excess clothes, my excess spending, my excess debt, my excess square footage? What is that doing to me? It's creating emotional clutter, mental clutter, psychological clutter. It's causing career clutter and calendar clutter because now I'm tethered to a lifestyle that I have to maintain. What is that stuff doing, not just to the world around me, but what's it doing to the world inside me? And how is it depriving me of that unique form of joy I only get to participate in when I am choosing to be generous towards others? We were made for movement. Energy, wealth was made for circulation. And when wealth comes into my life and I hoard it, I may look rich on paper, but I am bound by scarcity consciousness and I am poor in spirit. It's when I let those things circulate in and out of my life. I create wealth. I share wealth. I receive wealth. I give wealth. 
things move in and out of my life, not because I feel guilty and I don't want anybody to see how much money I make, but because I know that true fulfillment doesn't come from holding on to things. It comes from connecting with people and using things to amplify that experience. Yeah, that's spot on. For added value this week, I was playing this this morning before y'all got here. When TK walked in, uh, I think Carl Thomas was playing. Yeah, (laughs) my best day yet. (laughs) And so the song that you hear playing in the background right now is from a new EP. The EP is called Love. And the artist, his name is Mike. You've heard him on this podcast before. The song that's playing is a song. It's the opening song on this EP. It's called White Dress, and it's a sample from uh, Jagged Edge, Let's Get Married. And what a great song, although it's much vibier than the 90s Jagged Edge. In fact, Malabama was in here. She was just dancing. She goes, where was this during my wedding? I was so (laughs) mad. It was so vibey. So enjoy the song from Mike. It's from his new EP, which is called Love. And the song itself is called White Dress. Big thanks to Lewis Howes for joining us today. You can check out his book. It's called The Greatness Mindset. And of course, his show is The School of Greatness. We'll put links to both of those in the show notes. That's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Malabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan O'More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. See you next time. Peace. We ain't get no younger, we might as well do it. Meet me at the altar. Girl, we ain't getting any younger, I swear. I see your body in a white dress. I see your body in a white dress. I see your body in a white dress. I see your body, and you know I like that. I see you walking right beside me in a white dress. I like that. Forever I'm indebted to you Need you in my life yeah. Need you in my life I 
want it, just stand it right there, yeah I need to see you in the light See you as my wife, yeah, see you in my life, for real Just meet me at the altar in your white dress, yeah We ain't get no younger, we might as well do it Just meet me at the altar in your white dress, yeah I swear, yeah Maybe two or three daughters is all I ask We ain't get no younger, we might as well do it Meet me at the altar Girl, we ain't getting any younger, I swear Your body, I mean your body Your body, I mean your body Your body, I mean your body Next time I see it, wanna see a white dress In a white dress So much it's hard for you to digest Piped up, yeah, piped up, yeah, I'm piped, yeah, yeah We so tight, next. it was tight, though 